Dream to Reality Entertainment presents the Think Tank Podcast. Starring your host, he's a podcaster, photographer, filmographer, writer, conspiracy fascist, entrepreneur, explorer, color commentator, picky eater, beer ninja, secret agent, and the world's most influential humanoid, he is Ryan the Area Man. And now, coming to you pre-recorded from the very secretive D2R studios, deep undercover in the world's deepest, darkest, most secure, Hadron Collider and Nuclear Bomb Tested and Approved Doomsday Bunker, here is Ryan the Area Man! Well, hello there. I'm Ryan the Area Man, this is the Think Tank Podcast, and in studio with me to do this whole entire deal today is Dave. Yo, 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 it's my bitch today. Yeah, Dave, you did all, you did all the legwork and I kind of sat back and learned. Yeah. Um, it was kind of nice not uh, not being the, the driver this time. I let you take over. Yeah, it's cool. Like, she reached out to me on Twitter just within a week, you know, and was like, hey, uh, I saw you wrote a book. I just wrote a book, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, cool. And she said, we should talk. And I'm like, all right, cool. What do you want to know? And then she sent me this huge, long email and basically asking to be on the podcast where we could kind of share our stories back and forth. And... When I first thought about it, I'm like, I don't know how that's going to work, like, because she's not going to be in studio, so we can't really rap back and forth like we could on the phone. It would be different anyways. But So as we talked more, um, she's like, well, can we talk Sunday to kind of get comfortable and see how it would go and make sure no problem. So we talked Sunday for quite some time, and it was different than our interview because she would tell a story, then I would tell a story. It was just story, 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 story. And I didn't want, and I was worried that's how it was going to go again today, right. so I tried not to. I did throw on a few stories, obviously, but I, did, I tried to steer more to what she wanted to talk about but i think it went well it's a good interview yeah it's uh you, know. you get to learn a lot about uh recovery and hope and all that good stuff mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting and uh i thought it only fitting that you sit in on the intro and outro because it's basically <laughs> you yeah and uh yeah i mean that's that's pretty much it um We'll uh, we'll get into all the uh, all the good stuff at the end. So. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited. She wants to you know at least be a guest again. We'll we'll yeah. talk to her afterwards because I am thoroughly excited for her and I'm excited and, and intrigued to see how this plays out. Right. You know. And uh, real quick, obviously, if you're listening to this now, you're gonna hear it anyways. But um, her book does release officially today. Today. Uh, unhooked. Happy birthday to her as well. It's her birthday. So yeah. happy birthday, Annie. Yeah, happy birthday, and uh, her book's out, so go get that. But first, listen to this episode, or this podcast, uh, the interview with, with Dave and Annie, and uh, just a little bit of Ryan today. A little bit of Ryan sprinkled in here and there. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we'll see you on the back end. I'm not afraid. I'm yeah. Not afraid. It's been a ride. Everybody. I guess I had to go to that place to get to this one. Now some of you might still be in that place if you're trying to get out. Just follow me. I'll get you there. You can try and read my lyrics off, but it's... Alright, Annie, thanks for being on the show with us today. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you have a book coming out. And what was the title of the book? It is called Unhooked. Unhooked. So, tell the listeners what Unhooked is about. Let's start with that first. And then we'll get to the backstory afterwards. Um, Sure. It is basically the story of a span of time where my son became, he was injured as an athlete and was overly prescribed pretty powerful narcotics as a teenager um, by a doctor. And we went through the madness of Percocet addiction and all that goes along with that. And over the years, you just kind of learn what works and what doesn't and that, that ultimately you're powerless. So the bottom line was unhooking, unhitching from the roller coaster of the madness of his addiction. Pretty much the premise for it and the story that is threaded throughout it. All right. So, in in the book itself, um, you're you're telling real personal stories of your life with your son. Then, um, yeah, that's the that's the major story is our experience for those years. There's some backstory to it, though. Okay. Well, what's the backstory then? Well, um, I was basically kind of born into a family that was nonstop crisis. Um, and when my mom was about eight months pregnant with me, their home burned down. So they had five other kids, had five older siblings, and they moved into my grandparents' house. It was pretty well packed. My uncle at the time was in a band. He was kind of a hippie and pretty wild, and they were all in a three-bedroom home. So I was brought home to that. There was a lot of conflict and substance abuse dysfunction and a lot of religious dysfunction, um, not spirituality or, you know, faith that was working. There wasn't good coping skills or communication. It was nonstop, fight or flight, conflict and crisis. So I basically was born into that and was aware of all of those things that were going on, but not aware why or how to cope or how to deal. So that's pretty much the backstory before he came along. All right. So you said your your uncle was in a band, in any famous band or just a local band? It was called the Four O'Clock Balloons. Just <laughs> like a sixties band. I guess they were pretty good. They opened up for Jimmy Hendrix at some point. No um, shit. We can't wow. find a lot of stuff about them, but we, he had one of those old forty fives we used to listen to. Nice. That's very cool. What was yeah. the name of the band? One more time. Um, kind of. A, I'm sorry. It was called the Four O'Clock Balloons. He was kind of. He kind of had a difficult personality, so he didn't open up and flow in conversation with them about it. It was just something we all kind of had the knowledge of. But again, there was a lot of conflict with the older people in my family so there was much discussion about things at length. Okay. How, how long did it take you to write the book? Um, well, I pulled it from some journals I did when I was researching when we were in the midst of the crisis. Um, so I, I'd written it over a span of time but when I actually sat down to write it I had set a deadline for December of this year and ended up typing it out in 30 days. But I used a transcription service and it, they talk really fast. So I spoke it onto the page and had the skeleton of it pretty much within the day. Nice. So 30 days. <laughs> That's crazy. I already knew the story. And when you're flowing, if I sit down and try to come up with something to write, it seems clogged and slow and I'm distracted. But when you're flowing and it's just pouring out of you and you're kind of inspired and in your energy, it just flows. So that, that's pretty much what happened with that. So will you have an audio version of the book then? I hope so, but just with someone else's voice. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, that'd be perfect. You already told the story to, you know? But yeah. Yeah, right, you could just yeah, download it. Yeah, like an auctioneer. I tend to talk way too fast, so <laughs> I have to flip it down a bit. <laughs> 
So what was the main reason for you to write the book? Like, why did you decide you wanted to tell that story? Um, well, I, I just feel like it's when when you're a writer, you, you have a story in you. It just kind of pours from you, so one way or another. I'm an over-texter and an over-emailer, and so I tend to express myself that way anyway. But when I was in the midst of all of this, one thing I despised about any dysfunction, whether childhood or or going through that with my son was not having a lot of information or anybody explaining anything to me. I felt a lot of times alone and in the dark, and answer came later. I ended up kind of building a team on my own of a therapist, a police officer that was working out in the field, um, a medic, and that information constantly gorged on it, constantly went to workshops at the courthouse that were substance abuse related. I sat down with a pharmacist and so I just wanted all of this information. Nobody was really speaking to me, and I wanted to put it out there. Maybe somebody can identify with that. And then I wanted to tell the truth of the story because it's kind of interesting, but yet not do it in a shaming way or embarrass anybody. I wanted to just tell the facts of there's all this dysfunction that can happen within a large family when you have issues of poverty and conflict, and you can come out of that and not end up like it and not end up permanently affected by it. No, that's really cool. Now, um, you, your, is your son, now how old is your son now? He is now 25. 25, alright. So this has been, going, how, how long were the, is the span of the story? Like, did it happen 10 years ago or like in the last 7 well, years? Well, I'm the back story. It began about 9 years ago. Okay. So it's a, it's. And he's been doing his own path for 3 years in recovery and I don't even pay attention to how well he's doing, I, I try not to clock his time because I don't want to get enmeshed in all of that again because it was, it so consumed me if he was okay. It's my well-being onto if he seemed to be doing okay or not. Mm-hmm. So I just go as long as we're okay, I don't really guard that. Makes sense. Yeah, because in any type of recovery, you want to worry about yourself first and then worry about the others afterwards because if you're not in a good place, then you're going to kind of spread like wildfire to the other people in your in your circle. So it totally makes sense. Right, sure. And I do relapse because I always say, you know, I've heard the families in recovery too. Everyone, you become sick with the person who's addicted. And I tend to relapse down that rabbit hole of torment, fear, and this must mean that. And maybe sometimes even find myself investigating. And I know that's wrong and that takes me to a really bad place. But that's, you don't ever get perfect at handling it because it, it is a miserable thing. You mm-hmm. just get better. Right. Um, so, no, it comes out in November, correct? Yeah, it should be, should be out by my birthday, November 9th. That's what I thought. And, and this is a cool side note for you. This episode will actually be released on November 9th as well. Oh, that's amazing. So, Thank you. You're welcome. We were kind of doing... I love the, that synchronicity of that. Yeah, and, and I kind of talked to Ryan about that this morning, because you and I had talked uh, this weekend and just kind of got kind of the scenario of what we we're going to talk about and you had said it was your birthday it was coming out on that day and i was looking for the schedule of when our our episodes come out i'm like well we've got one coming out on the ninth let's just do that so so this wow, is wow i love it coincide you're absolutely welcome so hopefully <laughs> all our listeners will uh i mean it'll be tagged on facebook and all that good stuff but that's dumb okay. that's down the road and I'll pass it out as well. <laughs> yeah very cool so now you have uh You've got an actual publisher, too, correct? You've actually got a publishing company. This isn't self-published, too, right? You want to talk about your journey through getting it published? Yes, I have a traditional publisher, and actually I had um, set a goal to 
get rejected enough within two years that I'd give up if it, if it went by for two years. I ended up actually getting signed in three months. So it kind of flowed quickly. But it's not easy. It proposed it to, I think, 103 publishers and 144 literary agents. And most of them would say, keep going. I love your passion. This is a trending topic. It's just not our genre. We don't feel comfortable with this. So it's just kind of not nasty, but definitely rejection. So, but I kept going, and I thought, well, I'll just give it two years. So you gave it two years, but it only took three months. That's, that's Yes, I got five three months. Outstanding. I mean, congratulations on that. That in itself, other than writing the book, getting it, you know, getting the book deal is kind of like so unheard of and so unreal. You know, like when I. It's really hard, and I attribute it to timing more than talent. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's always, it's, that's how kind of, that's how fame and fortunes kind of happen, is it all kind of happens the right time, right place, right scenario, right situation. And. Unfortunately, right. for me so far, I haven't hit any of those yet, but you know what? It, it, well, it'll come eventually, you know what I mean? Well, you are not. I, I believe that. I'll take that. I'll go next. I'm okay with that. I'm kind of the, the single guy at the, the wedding when they throw the bouquet and I catch it now, so you're tossing it to me and I'm <laughs> catching it, so I'll take that. Um, but yeah, because... And your book's next on my reading list. I know, that's what you said. I'm, I'm excited about that. And yours will be my... By the time yours comes out, I'll have my other two books done, so I'll be able to get yours uh, right when it comes out as well. Can you pre-order that yet? Okay. I don't know if we're getting ahead of time, um, but... It should be released in a few weeks for pre-order. Um, I think it's through Amazon and Kindle and all that, and the publisher's supposed to let me know when. But they just have to have it ready, and then the physical books will be out by my birthday. That's so cool. So cool. So I'll definitely put everything on the page to announce when it comes out and Right. Everything like that. So we're, we're still in the editing phase because I did talk so fast and transcribe it that there's a lot of corrections. Yeah. And, and you know, and I have, I think when I did mine, I think I have five different proofs of different things that I caught throughout reading it over and over again. You know, you, the first time you read it and it looks great. Then you read it a second time. And, oh, I, I should have used these two words or whatever. So yeah, the editing process, you, you'll be editing forever. Even after it's released, you'll have to do a oh, second yeah. and third version. And plus sometimes you feel different about an emphasis you put on a point. And it's, and it's like, oh, I don't even want to read it like that again. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So you it's, know. A, it's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a good nightmare, but it's definitely a late process. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, now, do they choose, like, uh, the cover of it and all that, or do they let you still kind of have some type of creative control on that? Well, they design it and then send it to me in different formats to get my opinion about it. Okay, so they kind of design it, but you kind of still kind of have the final say? Well, I do. I mean, I have, they have the creative license, and I just love everything they do. It's a really good team. So I, I pretty much am okay with anything that's come back. Nice. And sometimes they ask me to explain meanings of things, or like um, sometimes you have inside family language, so I've had to explain things. But with the cover, I was really happy with the design of that. Very cool. Now, you, did you also come up with the title of the, the book, or did they help you with that? I came up on that because I tend to be obsessed with word studies and plays, playing on words and words in their vernacular, and so they're kind of represent unhooking from the madness and the drama, not being hooked, to, and that can come across anyway, and there's a boxing thread through it, so I kind of like the link to that as well. So what's the boxing reference? Like, I get the other two. What's the boxing one? Um, well, my father, um, he passed away in 2000, but when I was born, I was the youngest of six, and he didn't really have a communicating relationship with the rest of them. But he tend to favor me a little bit and spend a lot more time with me. So when 
you're the youngest child and they're older, they kind of realize I should have handled this maybe different. And he didn't really know how to relate to a girl, but he tried to teach me hard lessons and facing hard times in life or if I had conflict through threads of boxing. So he would teach me the psychology of boxing and boxing metaphors, and he would take me to fights and have me watch Sugar Ray, and he took me to meet Boom Boom Mancini and taught me all these, this terminology. He would say, never date a fighter, never be a fighter, but you can understand how to get through a hard time and how to be an underdog. And when somebody's coming at you aggressively, you can them out of a conflict and not have this situation seem as awful if you're looking at it from the view of a fighter. So that's kind of the theme throughout the entire story is the opiate addiction in my home. I kind of took it as my heavyweight bout for my life, the thread of it along it. That makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> so, what is your relationship like now with your son? Do you care to talk about that at all, or do you want to kind of skip over I'm that? I'm sure. I, say, somebody had said to me once, and I think I'd ask you this, if you can't, and he's not a horse thief, but if you took a horse, a drunk horse thief home, and they sober up on your couch, what are you left with? What are you left with? Yes. a drunk horse thief. If sober in your home, what are you left with? A horse thief. A horse thief. A sober horse thief. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody can go into recovery and get the, the biggest crisis issue is off. The biggest threat appears to be off. There's still an unraveling of issues. So we definitely still get triggered to lock horns. And it is not a utopia after that. But our relationship is not in crisis or under threat or what I feel like at odds constantly now. We, we still can bond horns pretty good, and that's just normal. It's not going to ever be a perfect flow, but it's not what it was. As long as we're healthy and able to communicate and he's okay and doing his thing, I consider us good. That's good. That's good. Now, you had mentioned that you relax. He is a grown man, so I can't, you know, I, there's not, there's, you have to, I try, never wanted him to be a mama's boy because I knew I wanted him to be able to cope. Mm-hmm. So I don't, really want to involve myself too much in his life, even when I'm curious and concerned. But I think it keeps it healthy that we're we're at a good distance, but it's light and free. Now, does, does he still live at home, or is he on his own? No, well, it's in the book as well. He had, three years ago, we had just transitioned through all the different levels of Let's try an intervention. Let's put it out. He'll go stay with his grandma. He's with a friend. He's back and forth. And then he finally, it had just gotten so bad that he was sleeping in a dugout at a ballpark where he had spent his life hitting home runs. And it was just miserable. So I went out of town on purpose. I, I couldn't see it. We all have said, if you agree to go into treatment, we will rush to get you there or help you there or lead you there. But no other help is available at this point. So he wasn't going to put up with being in that dugout long. And he went and booked a flight for himself with what he had left. Took off, moved to California, went into treatment, and has been out there doing his thing ever since. Wow. Does he does he hold a steady job at this point? Is he working then, or? He's now working for a hotel chain. He's also got a site photography business, and he works for the treatment center. But he finds that it's just kind of too too many triggers when he does that. So he's working out there. He's definitely created a new life. He has a girlfriend. Yeah. Um, he's traveled, and he's, he's just kind of trying to distance himself from the dysfunction of, I don't want to be associated with addiction the rest of my life. 
That's cool. So he's doing really well. And, and I get that point of working in the treatment center. Like, that would be me being an alcoholic going and working at a brewery. That just would not be a good thing for me. Um, so right. I, so, you know, like, I can go into bars. Like, we had talked on the phone. I can go into bars and I can go to yeah. parties. But I really liked craft beer. So for me to work at a brewery, <laughs> man, and to smell it all day long and not be able to sample it would drive me absolutely insane. I couldn't do it. You know, because just the it's little small... It's real hard to work in a pharmacy, too, if once you've been addicted to oh. painkillers and say you've had a, a, a stressful day and that's right there in front of you. That's just, it's, just, it's hard to have anything that's bladed in your face. Oh, absolutely. So I definitely understand. Yeah. I appreciate that. So, now, you had talked on the phone. I'm kind of trying to remember some of the things we had talked about that I know we wanted to hit on. Your, your son, you name him in the book, Elliot. So you have what's called the Elliot Effect. Would you like to talk right. a little bit about that? Or a lot, either sure, way. and I hope, I hope somebody can maybe identify, because I would have loved to, when I was going through it at times, I would think, this is just a really bad day, or personality clash, but it was over and over until I finally, somebody kind of put up the level 10 manipulation of it, and then it's like, oh, I can just unhitch from this and use different tactics or not deal with it. I, would, I just kept thinking I'd get to the bottom of it. And basically, it's this, my son, I've always said, he will not rob you. He will steal your purse and help you look for it. He is so charming. Kind of the um, Ricky Cunningham personality. Mm-hmm. He's almost like letting a puppy loose into a room and everybody is, oh, we just love him. So people would side with him. So he would create this smoke screen of conflict or somebody's kind of the villain. And I'd heard uh, Dr. Drew Podcast it was that some high-level manipulative addicts will set fires to hide that they're using. And that is kind of the Elliot effect to where, say, a family would take him in. He would use anything possible to make it look like his dad or I were crazy, in the wrong, abusive, and he was not doing anything wrong. So we would have parents or different people he had stayed with say, I I can't see that this kid's doing anything wrong. How can you be this type of parent not taking your own son in? And their kids, ten times out of ten, was into it with him. And finally... They would come out, and they would get burnt, and we would have been devoured. But in presenting to them, look, we're just trying to kind of box him out, let you know what's going to happen in your home, because this will explode. Not doing anything wrong, we want to kind of steer him toward going to treatment. And you have to, when you have somebody that will use anything to disguise themselves, when I would come across fast-talking and frustrated, he would portray it that I was intrusive and crazy and making him look bad. And it, it worked, so... He, that happened countless times. And I know he was down at his dad, um, and a neighbor had taken him in and just attacked his dad. And, um, you know, your son's here on his birthday. It's the most pathetic thing and blah, blah, blah. And then ended up with her pilt. And she had to put him out. So that, that happened over and over and over again. So we started just thinking, okay, well, what's the best way to approach this? You have to come across really sane, and it makes you really careful with how you present things. You're going to go nuts because you're going to listen up no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. So that's what I call the Elliot effect when they make everybody else look like they're wrong to hide their addiction. And I heard another man had told me when he was 15, his parents checked him into a treatment center for behavior problems, and he had taken the entire staff. He was abused by his parents, so they released him early. And then he ended up going back on the court because the disease, you don't outsmart the disease, and he had gotten out of control. Mm-hmm. So that's that effect. If that makes sense, I don't know if you can relate, if anyone will identify, but it's a definitely a miserable part of the process. Yeah, no, I, I totally relate to that. Like, 
when I was at the height of my addiction and alcoholism, I was using anything, any weakness or any sign of something that I could manipulate and use. Um, I almost became like right. a, a predator where I was preying on the, the innocent and weak. You know, I would find a, a good person and, you know, weasel my way into getting alcohol out of them or getting drugs out of them or getting sex out of them, you know. Um, so, anything, yeah, I, a validation, a place to stay, sympathy, agreement, and excuse for anything. Yeah. My son had read The Art of Manipulation. And, oh, we have no hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was already good at it. Then he wrote the book or read the book. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Right. Um, now you, and it's like, what's the solution? You just have to take your hands off of it after a while because the more you try to defend or explain or prove, the worse it all seems to get. So that's when you just have to go silent and think, all right, if I have belief in any type of a higher power, I don't care if it's gravity. I don't care what it is. The God of your understanding has to take over because I'm not the higher power and I'm making this work. Right. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with either early on with recovery or before they get into is the whole higher power God spirituality thing. A lot of people don't believe in God, so they don't think they can get help through a recovery program because it's so quote unquote godlike. And I have right. such a hard time trying to get people to understand that it's not a God thing. It's not a religious sect or cult. It's a self thing. Right? Yeah, you know, and, and I, I give an example. I'm like, look, you know what? Just like you said, it's grass. Like, I have a, a friend of mine that's in recovery, and their higher power is a fishing trip they took when their dad with their dad when they were six years old. That's their higher power, to just uh-huh. go back to that place. You know what I mean? And so right, when, if that... Right. If that doesn't sink in, I usually refer back to Fight Club when they talk about your happy place and, you know, your happy animal, the the one, the main character who had a penguin, you know, uh, and they're like, once yeah, they, could, that yeah, so and, and everyone's pretty much seen it at least once or a thousand times. So they kind of get that reference, you know, because they can relate to that. Right. They've seen it. They understand the, the idea and the concept of it. So. Now going right. back, going back to the Elliot effect, you had something that kind of triggered, you know, thought I something kind of triggered in my mind, the making you out to be like you were against him and conspiracy type thing. Now, do you think people that have an opiate addiction um, really heightened with the paranoia, or do you think that's part of um, the manipulation? Because I experienced yeah, it a lot too. It's really heightened um, manipulation to get by. Like mm-hmm. I'll give you the example of one of the worst things that happened. Um, and it, it, it's high-level manipulation to where you feel like you're in a conspiracy. It's, to not go nuts, you just have to walk away. He had gone to a treatment center locally, and I got a call to come in. I think it was Christmas Day. And I kept trying to, like, not make this about me, not how I feel about it, not my fears, but it, I was pretty heartbroken. Christmas Day, my kid's in treatment, and it's just been a nightmare. So when I noticed this therapist is, um, has kind of an attitude toward me. I sense this energy. And then I always second-guess myself because I come from a long line of invalidation and denial when you've got addiction in your family. I'm imagining this. No, i got to give her a chance. I don't want to be rude. Well, we walk back in and sit down, and I notice she puts her hand on top of it, and she keeps saying, it's okay, baby. I'm here. I'm here. She's not going to get aggressive. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this might as well be one of his teachers in high school who, you know, called me in to say, I heard he can't do his homework because you're strict and making him do laundry. Right. It's constant. Oh, she had kind of let me have it for an hour, and I knew I was so familiar with this illusion that I just had to sit there and take it, because if I fought against it, harshly, it was going to look like I was. It would say, 
Can't you just kind of tell her the truth? Don't do this while you're here. You're wasting the time. I just kept looking worse and worse. And when we walked out um, into the hallway, he turned and he said, did you like that? And I was like, no. And he said, yeah, I wondered. I wondered if you'd like that therapist. Therapist, believe me, the addict, the liar, would be the one telling the truth. So, wow. I mean, it was just when he goes into his nasty, evil tension of addict, that's the high-level manipulator. And he gets by on it very well. It's hard because you love your kid. You want people to love your kid. You don't want to break them down and expose them as being negative. But I have to because it's a life and death issue. It's it's it, to me it's like a it's fully like almost premeditated like he knew what he was doing so it's not even like the drugs are making him do it he you know what I mean that's that's kind of how I'm perceiving it it's like it helped but yeah. it's 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 weird to, like that it you started could, before the drug use he had like a, a really game. um an enabling really my mom's kind of they had a relationship with her where she kind of favored him and babied him. And very young, if he even wanted a toy in a gas station, and we always had a rule, if you put pressure in bag, the answer is just no right there, because it's never good. You're not going to sell stitches for anything. And if he we, if he was told no, within an hour, she would show up at the door with it, because he had called. So she kind of had this mental illness when it came to him, mentally ill enabler, babying, interfering, that, that extended all the way through his drug use year. So he learned to divide and conquer Wow, so it's like you're loving somebody, but you're trying to speak character, but you're trying to govern them. And when he was a minor, it was nonstop. You're, you've got this ability with your grandma, and it's like something at your age because you're going to get away with anything, but you have to not use it. So we just had to speak to it constantly. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely one growing up. He was like, well, if mommy says no, I'm going to daddy, grandpa, uncle, aunt, cousin, whoever, as long as I keep getting no's until I get that one yes. And then once he found that yes, he Sometimes, just yes, kept but using mostly it. Mostly grandma. Mostly grandma. Mostly grandma. And that's, that becomes an even bigger problem when you're trying to uh, help him recover because you've still got grandma that's kind of an enabler and a problem here. You know? Right. So I never felt believed. There had been a time where uh, I'm... I'm small, and he was a football player. He's a lot bigger than me. And I have four brothers. And I have a sober understanding that, you know, I'm not going to beat me up. I'm not going to go to the testing with anybody. So if he broke boundaries with me, I knew I had to have somebody stronger to enforce them because my rule was, in this house, when it comes to right and wrong, you're going to lose. It's only up to how bad you lose. So I would have to sometimes cross those lines that I somebody else to help me and he had been really belligerent. He was never violent with me, but belligerent, out of control, violent in the atmosphere one time. So I called a sheriff friend of mine to come over and come him down, talk to him, separate him from me, kind of enforce some strength that I didn't have. So I called my mom, which she always did, and she showed up at the same time these two sheriffs came, one bus, and she said, if he's doing drugs, she could push anybody to be addicted, you know, just like kind of fought for him. And after she had left, and there's been forgiveness for all of this because it's just craziness. After she had left, I never felt believed because I was always called a liar by liars. One of the police officers said, I can't believe that's your mom and not, you know, his dad's mom. That your mom's fighting this and we see truth clearly. Like, that's, I wouldn't want this now. But it was, it was the side factor that we dealt with through his entire childhood, rebellious teen years, on through addiction. There's no, there's no words to describe the burning frustration that causes. Oh, yeah, I could imagine. Uh, <laughs> and because this is grandma. 
Yeah. And I would write letters. I would email her. I would scream at her. I would talk really softly and send flowers. Nothing worked. I would say, you're interfering. You're interfering and I'm not in the wrong. You're interfering and he could die. You're interfering and you're going to kill her. It just never, she never broke her hold over his, over a neighboring hammer. Believing him, fighting with him, showing up and he knew it and when you're manipulative anyway, you're going to drag that right on into your knees with you. It was very dark. Right. Now you would, you had mentioned earlier, now did your mom also have a, a problem with uh, addiction and that's why maybe you think she was uh, enabling him a little bit better because she was kind of going through the same thing and not seeing it as a bad thing because she was handling it? Right. She had had a car accident um, when I was, I think I was 12. And she's been on pain medication for it ever since. That was, you know, decades ago. And it, I watched her. She kind of had issues and depression and she had probably too many kids and all, you know, like I said, a lot of crisis. I watched her decline into her addiction, and it kind of took her ability to reason and tell the truth. You know, when somebody's sitting on a deception, they'll have all these tactics to not hear the truth. Denial, play dumb, but it's really because they're a liar, and they're sitting on a deception. I mean, they can certainly come out as being a liar. You don't have to be. You can be redeemed. But when you're sitting on a deception, you tend to be... I'm harder to break through to. And I came to realize I'm never going to get to the bottom of this with her. I should present the evidence. And she's not going to agree with me because she's sitting on this deception. So she just seemed to get thicker and thicker with her pain killer abuse. Now, you had mentioned, too, um, the Saturday Night Live church lady. Do you want to go into yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, we were, um, by the time I came along, I guess, they had not really had any kind of a life like that before I was born. So the number five and six in my family, I'm number six. By the time we came along, my parents were really active in going to different types of service. So my mom, she, you know, when somebody is addicted and they come from a lot of dysfunction, they make a lot of decisions based on fear, shame, and control. So she has, she can quote scripture, she can speak French, she can give you every word. I mean, she's very intelligent, soft-spoken, doesn't speak her voice, doesn't, I've never really heard her pass. She thinks it's terrible if you don't go to church or anything like that, but she'll go down to a really bad neighborhood and buy her run out. So it's kind of that odd dichotomy of wolf in clothing, church lady, but I'm an addict. So that's just been a lifelong thread through our So she definitely is. You don't really realize you have an opportunity to. I didn't feel like I had a choice. To distance myself from her because I was, try- I was just trying to come up through the years and not be all of that. I didn't want to be a person of conflict. I didn't want to be dishonest. I didn't want to be addicted. So I was trying to, you know, manage my and navigate towards sanity and function. So I didn't really realize I was on you know, the train with her and still having a relationship with her and fighting with her every day. But you're an addict. What you're doing is wrong. You're seeing it wrong. You're enabling my son. You're buying pills. I mean. They're just never going to get it or agree with it. Right. So you become as sick in the conflict. So what's your relationship like with your mother now? Well, even though she, I could think done a lot of damage and she's hurt me so bad, I feel like I, she's older now and I didn't want her to have the burden of a child that hated her or feel unforgiven or guilty. So I can't get deep into discussion with her, but I will meet with her for dinner maybe once a month and kind to her and we can discuss television shows and, you know, decorations and things like that, but I can't go into deep conversations with her. So I, I, I wanted to get that gift to kind of heal myself mm-hmm. that I didn't feel like she deserved 
hatred been it's it's been a lifelong nightmare. Yeah. Ma'am, it's it's tough when you, you deal with that with your family. Like I, I'm kinda lucky I came from a family where my parents didn't drink in front of me until I was 21. And I still to this day, I mean, it's, I'm 30, almost 38 now. My mom has never actually officially drank in front of me ever. Uh, but I know she does because I've seen her drink with my sister, like on Facebook pictures and whatnot when they go on vacation. But I was never really in it. Um, my, my thing kind of happened growing up in high school. Um, my, one of my closest cousins killed himself and, I, at that time, had just started drinking, like, at parties, like kids do in high school, and I didn't know how to deal with the depression, and I was very angry at my folks, because when it happened, I wanted to go to the hospital and be there for him, even though I didn't know how bad it was, I just know he had shot himself, and I wanted to be there for him, and that she wouldn't let me, so I kind of lashed out, and I started cutting that night. Um, and that was the first time oh, I ever yeah. cut, you know, and I'd never, never seen it on TV, never really exposed, was never exposed to it. I just didn't want to kill myself, but I wanted to feel pain, you know, cause I did, I was right. numb, you know, I was completely numb. So I started cutting and when that stopped working, I turned to drugs. I turned to acid and marijuana and, and sex and drinking. And I never, right. like my parents never knew I hit it so well that even, I mean, now they've read the book, so they know, but even up until I read, wrote the book, they had no idea I was cutting, um, and I was doing all the things that I did. And so, I don't have that fight aspect of it. Um, I know there were times I'd been to, like, my niece's birthday parties, and I'd get really drunk, and I'd get pissed off for some stupid reason, I'd storm off and leave. So, I I kind of affected my relationship with my sister and my nieces and nephews because of that, but luckily... They'd now see, because they were way young, they didn't know, but now they see me as sober, as Letha nieces and nephews do, and, and that's really cool, you know, and, and like I had said on the phone, right. that's why my book's called Dave's Not Here, is because I wasn't there for so long, you know. Um, right, it's almost like you've been kidnapped. Yeah, absolutely, I, you know, the drugs and, and everything took over, you know what I mean? Um, right. But, uh, right. yeah. And that's one thing, like, as a family member, you learn, it's really personal. It's really not personal. My son's been hijacked. And, I mean, once he began to give over to that, once my mom, that began to become her cycle of life and coping, then it takes control of her will. And it's really not about me if they relapse or mistreat me. I just have to take care of how I respond to it or don't respond to it because I'm not going to work it through when somebody's active. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the big part of recovery, too, is keeping your side of the street clean and worried about don't, not worrying about your neighbor's side. You know, just make sure your side of the street is clean. You know. Right. And, and and I, I always come back to step one is my favorite because it's just, I'm powerless. And that's what I, when I always find that I'm surging at 80% or above with somebody or with a thing and I'm trying to frantically work it through my point or find out when I hit that 80% or above, or above I always step back and think, okay, I'm truly powerless over anyone else. I can only do so much in this situation, speak the truth, be kind, be calm, ethics, but I can't do anything beyond that. I can only, I can only do me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of my problem, too, is I, I wanted to control everyone and everything around me, and knowing now that, you know, the serenity prayer is huge for me. I say it all the time. Anytime I get pissed off, I, I turn to that. Um, I uh, For my one-year sobriety, a friend of mine gave me a ring that it's inscribed on the inside, so... A lot of times, if oh. I start if I start getting stressed out about something, I spin it around my my finger and I think about it because 
in life, there's stress in everything you do. You know, even even driving over to the the studio. I mean, I was a little stressed out because I was running behind because the lady in front of me at Starbucks took her a little longer, so I was late today. So I was a little stressed, but you know, I, I there's nothing I could do about it. You know, back in the day, drinking wise, I would have called him and say, "Hey, I'm not gonna get Starbucks. I'm stopping at the bar, getting a six pack or something, and I'll be over where I get drunk and I'll call into work because a lady took too long in front of me. That's how I went. You know, that that was my thought process back then. You know. And, and it's cool now to be able to be like, well, it, it is what it is. I'm late. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't change it. So just deal with it, you know. Do you... Right, I, and not just take off running into a thing. Right. I was going to say, do you kind of deal with things now differently than you did before? Because I know yeah, you say I, you're you still know, in like recovery, I said, I too. I do relapse down that rat pole, and I'm actually 24 hours clean. Hey, what do you hope? I'm saying, but seriously, I think you caught up in the frustration of the Dremelon. I mean, still, I'm just a lot better at covering and backing out of it now than I was. Mm -hmm. My friend um, had said to me one time, you used to go into the room and all the mess is there, and you put a sleeping bag on the floor, and you get home with it. But now you open the door, you see what's going on, and you back right out. So you just get better at how you kind of recoup and rebound. Right. And that's that's one thing... And that's through just discipline and learning. Right. That's that's one thing that... I, I kind of love about recovery and I kind of hate is that revolving door policy, you know, <laughs> because it's really good because, yeah, if it happens, then you can always come back. You're not kicked out for life. You're not shunned. But then I do see some of the newcomers be like, well, there's that option. You know what? I can always come back. I'll, I'll check it out. I don't really dig it right now. I'm going to go out and use again and I'll come back when I feel like I'm quote unquote ready. Um, so I don't and I do like it. You know what right. I mean? But I... I like it. My in my well, mind, for me, what I get caught up on is accountability. Yeah, I, there should be accountability in that. I mean, I don't like to hear my disease made me do this or that because sometimes it's personal and direct and nasty, and it may have made you do that, but you're still accountable and you still need consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to work on a fourth step. So it's for not sure. a free pass. <laughs> right? Exactly. It can't be like, well, I'm going to go. I really want to go steal this stuff, so I'm going to get drunk and go steal it, and then blame it on. Well, I stole it because I was drunk and my alcoholism made me, or my addiction made me do it. No, you right. made that decision before you were drinking or doing drugs. So it's your crutch, you know. And and, and that's, that's right. like I said, that's one thing that I don't like about it because they do. I, I see a lot of people use and abuse that open door policy, you know, or revolving door policy. Right, and I, I think that sometimes... Um disease is manipulated against free will, which I understand when you get to a point that is beyond your control and you are out of control with it. It is calling the shots, but there's still consequences and accountability, and your family has to set boundaries and recover, and the truth still exists. Right. Now, do you, are you, which theory do you believe in? Are you a genetic person? Are you a, a, a a disease person, like, how, what do you think addiction is? Is it genetic? I mean, where do you kind of fall on that line? Well, I definitely think it's generational, and I used to be completely against um, the disease, sir. completely against it. Um, in fact, one of the first times I went and visited him, they would say disease, I would say in his ear, it's not a disease, you don't have a disease, it's a act of your will. But as I began to learn and study and put myself in classes and learn to that, it's Chemicals are just like a weed killer. They all follow a path. And once you submerge your brain and your chemistry with certain chemicals, they take over, even in your cerebral cortex. So I had learned that somebody, say, who's been addicted to opiates, you'll hear them say, alcohol was never my problem, but I had a glass of wine at dinner or, or 
to a ball game at my brother's. Two weeks later, I was smoking heroin. It's because when you do anything mind or mood altering, once you have kind of gotten clean, it resets that cerebral cortex, and the brain chemistry goes back to the craving, and you're back to those thoughts of, I need this, I can't cope with that, I deserve this. So I do believe it's both. I could see that. I could see both. I, I'm on the fence. You know, I think each person is different. Some people may be affected by the disease part of it. Some may be genetic. It all, it, like anything with alcoholism, addiction, or anything, it's all individual based. You know, there's, there's not one set program that's going to be, okay, well, this is a cookie cutter program. You have, you know, you have, you're into alcohol, drugs, and, and women. Okay, well, that, you do this treatment and you're good. You're addicted to heroin and cocaine. Right. You go here. You know, it's not, there's nothing that's going to work. And, and I don't think people understand that, that aren't in recovery or been around it enough. They're like, oh, well, you're in AA, so you just, you're just automatically good to go. Well, no, there's a lot more to it than that, you know? Um, right. I don't think it's specific to one program or a set of standards. I think it's specific to that person doing work to recover. Yep. Whatever it is that's working for you, as long as you are mindful of you, you are self-examining, you're honest and truthful because that's where it starts, and you are working to recover, not working to deceive you can be sicker, not working harder at hiding it, but working to actually recover and be honest and truthful. I think that's what works. I agree 100%. Now, in... in I, I say this a lot in my meetings and, and when I talk to people openly about it. Like, you know, growing up or even past that, when I was when I was married the first time around, I had a brand new house. I I designed it. I you know I put all the cover you know the covers and the colors and shit the, the rugs. We we did everything. I was married. I had three cars, a vacation home. Like I thought I was happy. I was still using. I was still you know sleeping around. I was still doing the super things I did. Once I got clean and sober. I actually experienced joy and happiness for the real time in my life. And and I don't think people understand that. That it, we, we focus our lives so much on the material things and the substances that we abuse that we lose sight of what life is really about. And it's about loving people, being happy, being joyous, free. Like you said, free will earlier. And once you start yeah. down that road of addiction, alcoholism, substance abuse, you lose all free will. Because you're, you're the ability to be in the moment as yep, well. Yep. Yeah. You. Yeah. You're. You're constantly looking for that next high, or what are you going to do to do the next thing? It's never now, you know. And to be able to stop and right. smell the roses, sober is amazing, you know. Um, before back right. then, I would have been like picked on the roses. Be with yourself. Right. Right. So now I had a counselor who had said whenever he he was a, he's recovered and he's a drug and alcohol counselor now. And he, said he was talking about the impulse control that goes along with it. And this certainly applies to even myself. He says, um, he says when he starts to get uncomfortable in a situation at work or bored or he has to go get, give uncomfortable news, say, to an employee or client, he'll catch himself putting in an order on Amazon and following the tracking of it obsessively. Okay, it's almost to my house. And driving home to pick the order up to, like, race the traffic when it gets there. So I was like, that is pretty brilliant because honestly I do the same thing I'll find myself having to make an uncomfortable call back to a client or sit and process through something that's you know uncomfortable or boring and then before I know it I'm scrolling through my phone with stuff that doesn't matter and those might be low level responses to that to being unable to be present in the moment and deal and it doesn't take long to be present and to deal but when you find you're letting your impulses take over to other things that right there is addict behavior 
Yeah, and you know, it's funny, I didn't even think about that until as you're saying it, and I was online trying to download my my next podcast, I realized that you're right. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. I, I, I was not doing that. Um, you know what I'm saying, though. No, I, 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 yeah, that's what I'm saying. From the moment, however we can, and before you know it, you're off and running. Yeah, no, I, I can think of a lot of different instances where I did that and didn't even realize that it was addictive behavior. Right. That's so, cool. No, so he you, said that it was like a light came on. I'm like, I do the same thing. I'm scrolling through, you know, on social media that I don't care about. And then before I know it, I'm irritated or ticked off or time has gone by and I've got nothing accomplished. Either way, letting the impulse take over instead of it's the moment right there and anything uncomfortable produces something negative. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a psychology background? Did you go to school for that? Or is that something that no, you just kind of... No, um, I became obsessed with behavioral science and social science, so I studied it for about two decades. And I put myself... Um, I had some friendships with people who were... I have a friend who's a therapist and one who's a court counselor. So I would go to their workshops with them and go through their textbooks with them and just discuss it at length and study. And by no means by any kind of a credentialed expert, I just have a lot of experience in research like, to understand things as they happen and be a student of the mind and a student of adversity well, to apply those concepts. Right. Just because by first you usually have wanting to understand. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm all about getting doing the research. We That's something we talk about on the podcast quite a bit is we'll give out information on any type of weird conspiracy or whatever um, and we'll say, you know, do the research yourself. Don't take our word for it. Like, listen to what we have to say, and then go check into it yourself. You know, like, make your own informed de- yeah. uh, uh, decision, you know. Um, now you- I love that. I loved your, I listened to your Mandela Effect, which was that group thinking, and I told you it coincided with I had studied that French concept of folie adieu, which means the madness of two or more, or, or it could be called the madness of many, mm-hmm. and that can be collective wrong thinking, whether you are ganged up on or you have a family that is in agreement with dysfunction or a certain type of delusion, and I've always applied it to that I felt like for a long time I was seeking the truth and trying to find facts and fact proof, but argued against because it was a truth of addiction. And you would always hear that statement, when it's everybody against you, the problem is you. And that's definitely not true because there can be collective long dysfunctional messed up thinking, which is the madness of many, which I thought was interesting in the timing of your Mandela effect. Right. Yeah, you know, you you and I both talked about um, signs and things happening on time and, and for certain reasons. Like, obviously, you saw my Twitter feed for some strange reason at the right moment to be able to contact me. We started talking about the book you wrote, the book I wrote, and then... Right. Then you realized I wrote a podcast, or I, I do a podcast, and so it just it all and it all works out in the timing. We talked literally a week ago, I think, and here we are today, now right. real time recording a podcast about your book that's coming out November 9th. It just things happen for a reason, so quickly, so quickly, and it, it's I can't fathom how crazy this shit is. It just works out. Well, know? it is one thing I have found about I love the study of synchronicity, and that's a, a big um, thing Carl Jung wrote about. One thing that I have found is that when I'm searching for, I will go insane. If I'm searching for signs and for things to unfold and trying to put them together, it's not a scavenger hunt. But if I'm going about my way, they unfold. Hmm. That's very interesting. If that makes sense. No, it, it, it really does. Because, um, like, in 
going back to the selfish addiction addict that I was, when I would go to like a meet and greet with a celebrity, either a comedian, an actor, a band, I make independent films, so I would always bring it to them, not just because I'm you know a fan, I'm just giving them one of my works. It's more of a hey, I'm going to give this to you, watch it, you like it, you tell your friends, you get me, you know, you give me something for me giving this to you. It was always something like that. And like I had told you on the phone the other day, I wrote my book for the lead singer of Blue October. And not not so much that I only wrote it for him, but I wanted to give it to him and because he helped me. And it was nothing more in return. I didn't want him to endorse it. I didn't want him to tell all his fans, go read this book. And it was just, a, for me, it was like something completely different. And it was like, here, you, you take it. If you like it, if you read it, cool. If not, it's just a nice gesture. I don't want anything in return. And I've gotten actually more... Like I got more of a better feeling out of it, you know what I mean. I've gotten more positivity for just doing the right thing, and so right. And I, I heard a quote to the dance between make it happen and let it happen, and you can get caught up on either side of that. When you're making it happen, the energy and the effort is definitely you have to be active when you're trying to make something happen. But then there comes a time that you put in the effort, and you can kind of tell when the energy starts to fall, and it's kind of falling apart, and that's when it's supposed to allow itself to happen and you have to just balance the two yeah yeah i'm doing that with my third movie i've been editing that for like seven years mm-hmm. and i'm just letting it happen when it happens now because i was trying to make it happen i got very frustrated and now i'm just like yeah when i get to it it'll happen so yeah no i, I totally agree with that right. concept I'm, I'm down with that so now i'm going to use right. that from now on <laughs> i'm letting it happen it'll happen I when like it happens when I came to my son i'm going to make this happen i'm going to be the aaron brockovich i have so much knowledge of addiction i had parents say to me well if i only knew what was going on i would have handled it different i absolutely knew what was going on and at the end of it maybe i affected things more and i knew more but i was still powerless so i would think i'm going to be the rails to this i will consequence him forward i will be the non-enabling sharp-tongued qualified Aaron Brockovich, not enabling parent who's, you know, walking up on porches and telling the homes that sell pills and really scary neighborhoods that I'm bringing the media. It's crazy. I was doing crazy stuff and I wasn't high. And I had to realize, I, okay, I can make stuff happen, but not to let it happen. And I had to apply that concept to him because I wasn't going to make his decision to stop or turn it around or go anywhere. It happened. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember correctly, you're very active in your community now, too, right? Um, as far as I speak at a treatment center on Tuesday, and I go to several meetings, and um, I work. <laughs> well, I know you work, but I, I meant more on the on the addiction recovery side, because I know you had said you go and speak oh, yeah. quite often. Um, right. I meet with families, and I sit in on sessions um, every Tuesday. So I meet with families. A lot of times they're just coming in to take, and they're raw. Um, the ones that it's brand new, and they've sometimes just found out 24 hours ago that heroin is a part of their life. There's some that it's our second time bringing our daughter here. Um, these families are in PTSD. A lot of times it's led to stealing and lying and conflict, and sometimes prostitution, everything that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. So I meet with these families every Tuesday, and I, I find myself in their stories as much as I can say, this is how I handled it and got free of the misery of it. And sometimes this is how I handled it, made it worse. Right. So that's my Tuesday nights. That's cool. That's something that I want to get into. Is definitely be be more of a 
advocate and, and a, a not a social worker but a helper you know and that's why i'm going to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor so i can start doing that on a more permanent basis to be able to help people because that's what like i said that's what it's all about is helping fellow men you know fellow men and women to to live a, a good happy clean life you know i'm not saying everybody has to quit drinking um i'm not saying everybody has to stop smoking pot or whatever but if you have a, a problem with addiction, alcoholism, whatever, gambleism, sex addiction, doesn't matter. Cigarettes, whatever addiction you have, you know, talk out, talk to your family, talk to your your friends or whoever that can help you get get on that right path. Right. There's a book called I did a, a study called Rebel Judo. It's taught to a lot of law enforcement, and it's about how you enter into a high level hostile situation and how you can sometimes handle it. And the book talks about how one of the most powerful words in the English language is empathy. And boy, that just is universal because I would tell somebody I got these issues with my son and if they would press me, I could always tell when the energy was not the place I wasn't safe to tell the story because immediately they'd say, oh, I hope it works out and I'm close to it. But, but there was just something about somebody who could say, oh, I totally get it. And whether they'd experienced it or seen it or not, that empathy just it was an unburdening every time I experienced it. So, so if I can give that back, I get it. I completely get it. You're not alone. And this can end up okay. There's something really powerful about giving that back. Oh, absolutely. You know, and 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 I've, I've come across a couple of people in school that try and show their empathy, but they're... You can tell it's like a made-up story, which then it almost takes a completely opposite turn and makes things worse. You know, um, for example, <laughs> you know, I was talking about, um, God, what was I talking about? I think I was talking about one work issue I had and how normally I would just go right after work and go hit the bar and drink until I was passed out and go home or take somebody home or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that happened to me one time when I was using addiction. I got mad at my mom and I stole a pack of cigarettes and I stole this and stole that. I'm like, that has nothing to do with my story. Like, why would you even say that, you know? And so I think a lot of it, too, is they, they, and especially for new, I think, new counselors or new people trying to get into helping people, is there's so many different ways to help that they're lost in the sea of vastness of what they can and shouldn't say. So they, and they think everything has to be right now. Like, I'm big into being in comfortable silence. Like, I'm okay if it's quiet. See, I'm okay with that, you know, um, and, but some people aren't, so they always got to fill it and they, they think they have to say something all the time. And that's where you kind of can say the wrong thing and, and tweak it. And it's very important with helping people with addiction, uh, substance abuse issues because they're, they're latching on to some, some type of hope, you know, and if you give them the wrong advice You're right. or say the wrong thing, they're reach they're grasping for that last string. You know what I mean? And so I think you're right. you're right on the empathy part. I mean, it's, it's huge for, for that. And, and I'll talk to people like I, I've never been raped. I can never say that I've been raped and I can, but I can still empathize with people that have been raped. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I do. And I have a friend who would tell, she's a the court therapist, she would say there's two kinds of wisdom and you can tell when somebody's coming at you like, oh, I get it. And it becomes about them and you kind of feel a shaming going on or, not that you want to make it about you, but when you're in crisis and you're overwhelmed and surging and somebody comes at you with your story, you definitely have to be safe and keep your world small and be careful who you open your heart to. So there's two kinds of wisdom. There's one kind of wisdom that's, oh, I get it. I get you on board. I'm, you know, in tune with spirituality and kindness and all that. But there's always a soft side to it and they're about themselves. And then there's the wisdom that always leads to hope. You can tell the difference. 
the difference is the energy it affects you with. Am I, like, suddenly feeling inferior to this person or, like, they just took my hand and ran with me or, like, they're maybe taking my story and just me shaming me and spreading it? Or do they get it, whether they lived it or not, and what they're telling me is stay in the fight because you're not alone and this is going to end up okay one way or another. So I've been burnt by that false wisdom a few times. I definitely know the difference now. Now, what kind of feedback are you getting on, like, I know you're on Facebook and Twitter, like, are you getting a lot of positive people saying they can't wait to hear the book, or, why, you know, have they given you any positive, like, reinforcing and reassurance of what you're doing yet, or are you still waiting for the book to come out to get that? Well, I'm kind of super shocked to see that I come from a small hometown, and, you know, not a lot of people know a lot of these issues were in my family or whatever, they just probably see the reactive personality to it, so I haven't really put too much out there, because... I'm super shy when it comes to attention, and and a lot of times writers are. They would rather put everything on paper. You can tell your whole life on paper, but you don't really want conversations and public attention. So I've kind of taken baby steps with that. But I did do an interview in San Antonio. I had one of the Baldwin brothers with me and the treatment center CEO, and the phone system shut down with people asking about the book because they wanted to hear a family member's story. So again, I don't attribute that to tremendous talent as much as the timing of it because people need to be unburdened there. I mean, I know where I was. It was confusing. It was chaos. There was no head or tail to this problem. It was like a predator and it would show up different than every time it came into our home. Every time there was a relapse. Every time somebody came to our door that I wasn't familiar with their type of behavior conflict or it just showed up worse. So to be able to unburden and announce, you know, we've gone through this too. This came at our home too. I think people are kind of surging and ready to hear who can relate to their story and the madness of it. Yeah, I'm getting good feedback to answer your question. The short answer to your question. No, no, you give it. You, we you have all the time in the world. You can take a long answer. That's fine. <laughs> it, it's funny that you say you're shy, and here we are doing, a, you know, doing a podcast interview. But you're shy. You don't want to talk about it. So. Um. <laughs> I think that's My funny. son always called me Miss Social Unsocial because I'm a loner and pretty antisocial, but I'm super outgoing and talkative, and, and you can be both. Yeah, especially when you're when you're passionate about something. You know what I mean? Like I'm super passionate about my recovery and helping other people. So yeah, I blatantly and I talk about it all the time, and people get sick of it. I'm sure. Like right. Ryan, Ryan hates when I talk about it all the time. He's he's nodding yes. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> he he doesn't. I mean, he, he lets me get on my soapbox every once in a while, and I'll, I'll say some things, but. Um, no, so what do you it's, about it? it's therapy for Dave, and I understand oh. that. <laughs> he needs to talk. Right, about I get it. it. Yeah, no, I, I don't do it that often anymore. But when I need to, I would do. I do. But um, I, I think what was weird with mine when I started talking about putting my book out, and, and I said it was going to be a tell all of my life and, and whatnot. I think a lot of people were looking for like the dirty laundry, the secrets, uh, and all that, and they, they did get a lot. But a lot of the things they didn't need to say or hear weren't in the book. You know, like it, it's a very tactful way of saying, yeah, I was a piece of shit for a long time. And you may not have known that side of me, and I'm glad people didn't, but there are a lot that did that I didn't even get to touch on this book because it was such a whirlwind. Like I took, I was a little under 30 days, I think, when I actually finally put it all down because I had a time, a quicker timeline that I wanted to get it done. And I had to get to the editor and, and get it in the self-published queue and all that stuff. But the second, the second book is a lot more in-depth. And I've been working on that one now for about nine months. And I, mean, I, can't, I can't even say a solid nine months because I haven't touched it in like two. 
you know. Uh, and maybe you'll just pick it up again and write it in 24 more hours. Yeah, and that's yeah, the thing. There's an evidence flow to that. Yeah, and that's what I was like. I was pushing because I hate having like a, a, a hard deadline. Like I wanted to get it out by Valentine's Day of this year, and I got busy with work, and, and we went on vacation, and I didn't get a chance. And then I was like, all right, well, I'll just do it for Christmas of this year. And then we got puppies. And then, so I was busy with that, and I'm in school, and I'm like, well, I'll just get it done when I get it done. So when I do find time, I, I, I do write like a page or two, and at least I, I minimize when I do, or I maximize. When I'm there, I can only do, as long as I do at least a page or two, I'm good. So I've, I've written, right. but just not as much. And, and and I don't, and I keep telling people, because people are like, when's the next book coming out? I want to read it again. I'm like, well, I need to make sure it's good. Like, I want to make, I don't want to rush it. I want it to take its for course, and I want it to flow naturally, you know. And you don't want it to be a, feel like a high pressure deadline because then it that clogs the flow up. Yep. Yeah, and then you're second guessing because you got it done in time, but then you're second guessing: did I do it right? Did I leave something out? Did I over say something else? You know. Um, right. Now you you haven't, uh, or at least as of Sunday, real time, you you haven't really given a whole lot of thought of your next book. Is that still true, or have you kind of thought about it more well, since I've Sunday? Well, I actually started that. Um, Basically, I didn't want to just get stuck on the concept of lifelong addition. So I've kind of started writing, um, I started writing, a, I have two articles that are published in LA. So I started writing a third one based on conflict styles. I did a study of boxing styles, and it's really similar to people's fighting styles when they're aggressively in conflict constantly. And then I, it, it just didn't end with an article, and I pulling all of these short stories of family madness. And so my next book is going to be basically on coming out of, like, family madness and dysfunction and um, only not seeing it, but not being lifelong affected by it. Because those are the two ends of the spectrum that we're obsession. I don't only want to not have constant conflict or constant dysfunction and defeat in my life, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life draining people because it's so affected. And when mm-hmm. you have a really large family and there's always something going on, Anyway, particularly when it's a family that has all of this pathology, you'll drain everybody around you. I would have my friends that would say, why do you care what they're doing or what they're thinking? Or just don't answer the phone calls. And it's worked to realize you have that choice. So I didn't, I worked throughout my 20s hard on not becoming it. And then I spent the next decade working on not being permanently affected. So that's kind of like where the next one's been bring forward. No, that's really cool. In, in- one thing that really kind of stuck with me just now, what you said was, uh, you know, there was always something going on. Like, in all my life, and I never even thought about it until you just said that. Like, all through my addiction, alcoholism, and all that stuff, I always had some drama. It was always something going on. It was like, oh, what's going on with Dave now? What's up with Dave now? It's always Dave, 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 because there was always something going on. And I like that now I do always have something going on, but it's positive things. You know, I've got puppy school, I've got work, i got the podcast, I've got school, I've got other it's things. It's not craziness and yeah. crisis and chaos and embarrassment and problems to solve. It's yeah. Just, those don't have to be your stepping stones. Like, we didn't live based on a family schedule. We lived from crisis to crisis, and it was sickness. And, I mean, my oldest brother got in trouble with some kind of crazy wild biker thing and did a stint in prison, and that was... Of course, but we've never experienced anything like that in our family. We went from one thing after another, and my brother's fighting, and pretty violent fighting, and my mom and dad arguing, and then party issues, and having to move. We moved, I think, 11 times by the time I think I was 13. Wow. Just over and over, and it was like, you could never calm down. I 
I remember walking around and counting to a hundred, so I could just calm down and hearing loud voices. And even if it wasn't an argument, it was you know that many people in one setting, and you're going from drama to drama to drama, and then you're moved into the world, and that's what you know. That's your energy field. You know, you just said something too. You walked around counting to a hundred. You know, um, you you talk about quite a bit the the ninety second rule. Do you want to kind of briefly talk about that or expand on that a little bit here? Yes, I've seen this neuroanatomist, a neurosurgeon um, professor, who had said your body produces those stress inducing chemicals in ninety seconds. So basically, they flush through your body in ninety seconds. Fight or flight adrenaline and cortisol hit, and you're surging with it. That's those road rage moments. That's when you say those. Um, gut shot things to people that you can't take back. So if you will literally unhitch yourself in, for 90 seconds, for me it's go do a breathing exercise or walk my dog or walk outside or if I'm in my car, turn the radio off and do the AEDs, something to pull me away for 90 seconds because then you are, you can return and you're not chemically or emotionally the same person. 90 seconds later, unless you choose to be, you can hold on to those, that adrenaline, those feelings and run with the rage. But if you, consciously step outside for 90 seconds and let those chemicals flush through your body, let the calming and the calm and the surging stop, you can respond different. So sometimes I'll find that a client has gotten aggressive or rude, and I'm immediately starting to, you know, <laughs> send back the nastiest message in response or defend myself or so that I just back my chair and walk my dog. By the time I get back to the computer, I don't even have the same feeling to respond this way. I'm not in the same, you know, level of surging with that. So I'm I apply the 90-second rule every time something triggers fight or flight me. As much as I'm able. Sometimes you can get caught off guard. Right. Yeah, and, and, but it's a practice. And I practice it constantly. I would say, before I, I had heard that from you, I had never heard that. And I'm definitely going to install that into my life. Because, as I mentioned to you, I had a big thing Saturday where I was super pissed. And instead of taking that 90 seconds and calming down before I really looked at things... And I just quickly reacted right away, and I went on this tirade of swearing and whatnot. And Joy, my fiance, actually had gotten emails and, and talked to people in person that were like, wow, what's going on with Dave? Like, we saw the post. That's like a drinking post that Dave would post. Like, when I was pissed off and drinking, I would post <laughs> shit like that. So they thought that maybe perhaps that that was the thing that broke the, you know, was the, that was the last straw, and I started drinking again. And I'm like, nope, nope, I'm right. still sober. I was just pissed, <laughs> you know. Um, so that 90-second thing is really key to me, and I hope the listeners and, and everyone that you you influence and, and they hear you talk and read your book, I think that's one of the key things. That I wish anyone... somebody would have said that to me 10 years ago because I would tell them, you know, one of, I would say terrible things to my mom in response to that high stress. And I was talking about the 90-second thing to one of my girlfriends about a week ago, and she said, my husband has a 24-hour rule. We don't have a conversation there that's got heat on it. For 24 hours, and he applies it to business. And I said, last whatever works, I have to have a microwave version. I can't wait 24 hours. I have 90 seconds for me, whatever it takes to remove you. Yeah. And I have a, um, my favorite, one of my chapters in the book is called My Favorite Word, and it's the word equanimity, which I learned is that of a storm, and it's calm right in the midst of a difficult struggle, and that's a practice. So I kind of compare it to, when you're sitting on the couch trying to read or if you're trying to do yoga or meditate or something quiet and there's a jackhammer outside the door. You have to center. So I I apply the 90 seconds to that. No matter what's going on, I can't go on with it. 
That that's a good point. Yeah, I like the twenty four hour rule, but yeah, once again, in, in today's day and age, that, yeah, I, 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 I try to, but I can't. Yeah, most of the time, like, I have no issues at home no, other than my mail. Like so, like all my issues that I end up having are at work, and I yeah, I definitely can't wait. It's it's a not it's a fast paced environment. Everything has to be done 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 now. Right. But I do have at least ninety seconds to remove myself for a minute and make a decision. So I am definitely, like I said, going to make that more of a practice in my day life rather than making quick right. decisions or snapping back. That's one thing that I do a lot back. Like if I have someone that I'm having a conflict with verbally, he'll say something shitty to me and I'll write back, say it back instead of giving a 90 second cool down phase and rethinking and thinking of something more positive or, you know, cause if I'm not helping the situation, I'm making it worse. And most right. of the time when I act quickly, Sober or not, I'm I'm adding fuel to that fire. So I'm definitely, like I said, going to take that 90 second thing to continue. I mean, it doesn't hurt anything. If we all have 90 seconds. You can set your watch by it. Like I mean, I have a lot of brothers, and one of them tends to be quick tempered um, and a triggerer as much as I can be. And I find that you know, let me respond to you in 90 seconds. Let me walk. You know, I ha- I have to apply that because we're going to hit the running, and there's no good is going to come from that. Um, one of the things I've studied in the course of word searching is the subject of vitriol and conflict. And um, vitriol is that harsh, nasty, tearing down, insulting criticism. So it's never going to serve a good purpose. It doesn't have a motive to serve a good purpose. And when you are in the presence of it, whether you're launching it or it's being done to you, you're in the presence of dysfunction. You're not going to solve anything. It's not going to end well. It's just going to be a repeated cycle. Um, it's what sulfuric acid used to be named because when it was heated, it could burn through anything, even rock or steel. So I have learned, once we're engaging in vitriol in a discussion, I gotta get out of it. Because there, this isn't problem solving. This isn't motivated by peace or solution. This is rancor hate, and it's not going anywhere but down. And what, and what was that word? A conflict in addict issues and family because it tends to get heated so fast and then you go for the artery. You said it was equanimity. How what was that word again? I want to write it down. Uh, it's vitriol. It's the word vitriol. Oh, there we go. Harsh, bitter, hateful criticism. All right. Yeah, it's it's right actually underneath for your talking points. I wanted to bring up the three C's, and it's right underneath that part, the life now. But do you want to talk about the three C's? I know you've kind of touched literally each one throughout this conversation, but you actually have a three three C's, like little anonym or synonym or anecdote. Yeah, yeah that's the word anecdote. Well, I have it on my fridge. I actually created a flyer that's given out um, at the treatment center on Tuesdays, and it's the tips for how to remember. And this will save you a lot of engine running time if you remember these or come back to them. And it's that when it comes to your addicted loved one and their behavior and all that, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. And even if you think you caused it, we're here now. We're here today. And here parents come in and so many times for the first 20 minutes, they'll give the list of he was raised in private school. She's classically trained on piano. Her dad's terrible. Her dad's wonderful. I mean, it's this list of how we didn't see this coming or we did or whatever the case may be. You're here now, and you didn't cause it. They chose to engage in it and build up a tolerance, and the tolerance became tendency became addiction. So you're here now. And then when it applies to relapse, I remember, you know, my son saying, don't stress me out. And then I would think, oh, I'm going to stress him out and he's going to get the relapse. But somebody can live next door to a drug dealer and be stressed out and choose not to. So I wasn't going to put the pitch, the power of me causing it on me. And then you can't control it. 
obviously some of those things were whatever your tactics are, investigating the detective stuff, trying to um, chase down drug dealers or whatever the case may be. You can't control it. It's just a beast you can't control. And obviously we can't cure it. They have to send a recovery that works for them. So those three C's for me have been not only life-saving, but mind-saving. Yeah, and, and to your point with the drug dealer thing, yeah, you can round up every single drug dealer in town and lock them up, get rid of them, whatever. There's going to be a new one the next day. You know, there is, and you hear people say, you just need to get this person out of state. And I thought that would work, too. But, you know, there's that saying, I think it's, I remember, to Shakespeare, wherever you go, there you are. You say, How many times do you send a drug, somebody who's hooked on whatever, to Utah or California or Florida, and they relapse there because they're going to find it? They have to decide to mindfully work on recovery and a program that works, whatever that is. Yeah, and, and you said it. You hit the nail on the head right there. They need to want it. The, the, you can't force recovery on anyone. It's just not going to work. It'll it'll add more resentment by making them go. Like when I was married, my ex-wife told me a lot of times. She gave me that ultimatum: either you go to rehab or stop drinking, or we're getting divorced. Well, I guess we're getting divorced because I'm not stopping drinking. You know, um, or you'll try to stop drinking and just get better at hiding it. That was exactly it. I would be like, okay, well, yeah, and I won't drink, and then I'll be like, well, I'll just drink at dinner or or special events. Then it came to well, now I now once I was able to do that, I had to have a two drink maximum. I couldn't drink more than two. Well, then I was like, all right, fine. So then I would right. drink two Long Island iced teas, which obviously is a little bit more than two drinks, really. Um, and I'd always get the big ones. I could never get a small, just a shot or anything. It was always I manipulated the system to make it work, and then it became. Well, she's not home. I'm going to drink while she's not home. And then when she comes home, I'm like, yep, I had two Long Islands. You know, it, it was just bad because I didn't want to. And I resented the fact that she was like, you need to quit drinking. And I was pissed. You know, when I was uh, 21. Well, you would have been doing it for her, and that's wanting it. Right, yeah. That's wanting to not have consequences or conflict or loss. That's not wanting it. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I, hated, yeah. I hated my employer because they made me go to rehab. Because I, I didn't go to work for like four days. And it's a whole long story. But they made me go to rehab. <laughs> And I hated them because they made me quit. I had to quit, but it only lasted two whole days because it was an outpatient treatment. And on the second day I was there, a guy came in that was a heroin addict, and he's like, hey, I'm going to go to Hooters afterwards to get dinner and meet my girl. You want to come? I was like, well, I'm an alcoholic. I really can't go to a bar. You know, that's what they told me. I can't go to a bar. And he's like, well, let's just do this. I'll drink and you do heroin. And I knew he was joking, but I got what he was meaning. So we went, and he ordered a pitcher, and he couldn't finish it, so I, of course, drank it. I'm like, well... I can drink, and I just won't tell anybody. So then I just, two days into my rehab, you know. But Right, because you can't control it either. Cause it's gonna, I mean, you might think you're controlling it today, but you're not able to see around corners. And things that activate the use of it take control before you know it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, let's see, what else? It's the minute part of it. Trying to think, what else is there? Anything? I mean, I remember telling my son, "Why I didn't raise you to be stupid? I didn't raise you to be dishonest. Like I, I raised you, teaching you concepts of sanity and sobriety. You've seen this in our family. You need not be it. I didn't raise you. To, I mean, I wouldn't have even tried so hard. It had nothing to do with that. It was he was choosing it, and once he chose it so many times, he was off the races. Right. Um, you, you talked about bottomless arguments earlier. Can you kind of elaborate on what those are and how to maybe possibly prevent them? Um, you just don't quit. <laughs> you just want to get it. Like, again, you have to look at just like a certain type of wisdom leads to hope or not. A certain type of conflict leads to peace and solution or not. 
when you find that you're locked horns and it's not going to end, or you're dealing with somebody who maximizes anything they can to pounce on, and they're not obviously motivated for peace, they're motivated to win or belittle or look better or whatever the case may be, to manipulate around something or manipulate for something, you can definitely you can start to sense a motive. So the bottomless arguments like I would have with my mom, um, they're, they're prescribed, but you're overusing them. And, well, I'm not doing that, but I'm only doing that because of this. Every, it was it was so slippery and so much hyperspinning that we couldn't even finish a conversation because it was just unending. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. And when you're in the presence of that as well, that's dysfunction. All, I mean, I like not walking into that room and making peace with it. I have to just, okay, I'm going to do 90 seconds and leave this conversation. And I always hated, we're going to agree to disagree, because I would think, well, yes, there's two sides to every story. There's a right side and a wrong side. But, you know... Whatever the case may be, I'm not going to, you know, violently, verbally fight it out with you anymore. Right. And, and one thing that always kind of I had an issue with in my millions of relationships that were bad um, was the bottomless, like you said, the bottomless arguments where I'd be like, all right, I'm going to walk away because I'm heated, I'm pissed off, I'm drunk, whatever, I'm going to go sleep it off. And the person would continue to follow me and fight with me. And it just seemed to explode right. even worse. So taking that 90 second the 24 hour just doing like you said you have to remove yourself from that situation because it's only going to get worse right. and you're going to say in the heat of the battle you're going to say things you regret you're going to do things you regret and it's just going to get out of hand and there's no good outcome if you continue to stay in that argument no and you usually have a minimizer and a maximizer and somebody who's maximizing the argument and to solve it now and force the issue tends to have abandonment issues like we got to get this solved now i'm in your face about and then the minimizer just doesn't want the conflict, whether that's a negative reason or not. I mean, conflict's a nasty, gnarly thing if you live with it consistently. So I don't think anybody enjoys it unless you're truly narcissistic and sick. And when you have that, when you have the pleasure, and conflict definitely increases when you have a substance abuser or manipulator, deceiver, whatever the case may be. When you have it on a constant, you're not, it's not ending. It's not solving. There's, I mean, there's nothing you can do but take care of you. My, my friend with the therapist would always say, what is it going to take for you to be okay? You're not resolving that. I would say, I had this discussion with my mom again, and it went two hours. I kept thinking I would just come up with a new formula of words and vocabulary or evidence, and she'd get it. And then we'd have cases solved. It, it just never happened. But she would say, well, she's not doing anything different. Your expectations are thick. Because you keep expecting it to happen, and you're on this hamster wheel. When you're on that hamster wheel of conflict, I mean, you just have to, as far as you get out of it, permanently or not, you ha- you can't remain in it. Right. It's, it's nothing but function. Now, skipping ahead back to the release date, are you having, like, a release party? Are you doing anything fancy and fun for, other than the fact that it's your birthday? <laughs> I was wondering if I should. Um... I don't know. The publisher does a lot of things that they set up book signs for you. I know if there's some out in Portland and California. So I think I was just kind of, I'm super excited about attention. So I was just going to kind of wait and go with the flow when that starts to happen. We're just a few out. So um, I guess we'll have to make those decisions. So you said you got book signings in Portland. And where was the other one? Um, out. We're going to do most of the promotions beginning in California and Portland. Okay. You have dates for those yet or not yet? Um, I should as soon as it comes out. When she's done with the final physical um, 
copies, that's when she's going to let me know that to set the schedule. They okay. set that for me, and then they send it to me. So you live in the Midwest. You should do some Midwest ones, too, possibly. You know, like Chicago. I agree. <laughs> Chicago, Milwaukee. Yeah, that's where you guys are, right? Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, get some yeah, of the Yeah, I've been off that way. I've heard it's an amazing city. Chicago's awesome. You never been to Chicago? No, no, I've been to New York and Boston and some of the other big cities, but I've not, not yet been to Chicago. Oh, yeah, Chicago's awesome. It's a good time. Um, and then you yeah. got Milwaukee's right here by us too. Milwaukee's a good town. Madison's a good town. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, as soon as you get those dates. Yeah, once you get those dates, let me know and we'll throw them on the site too. You know, cause we, we've oh, got listeners okay. everywhere. I'm sure we've got them in California and Orlando. I think we've got one in LA, don't we? We have lots of listeners in California. So. Yeah. See, so we got all kinds of people over there. We'll have to send them your way. Right. So, what's your take on all of this? I don't, I don't know how much experience you have with family dysfunction and addiction and recovery and all of that. Uh, I, and we have lots of family dis- dysfunction, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> not at all. Now, not so much, um, like, when it comes to addiction with, like, drugs and and that type of thing. It's, it's more, I don't know, I'd say uh, parts of my family, it's more of a hoarding type of addiction and uh, I, I don't know I, 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 I'm learning all this um, through Dave like I don't know it's interesting I'm, yeah, I'm because more he's of a, so open about it all yeah I, I, I just I kind of sit back and observe and you know I, I have my opinions I do uh, when you're when you're talking about the bottomless arguments uh, I find myself in those a lot yeah, about just oh, really? about, just about anything, and I I contend them with anybody, and I don't know, I don't know, maybe it's just uh, that's that's a me thing, I guess. Yeah, that's a character defect. Do you keep them going, him. or do you find yourself surrounded by people who keep them going? Say that again. I said, are you the one that keeps keeps it going, or do you find yourself surrounded by people or in relationships with the people that keep it going? Uh, I, I kind of think it's me because. I'm when I have these when I have certain conversations with people, I get the impression that they're not understanding what I'm saying. So I try and reword the questions or whatever, and it's almost like I'm looking right. for a a certain answer. But most of the time, I feel like I'm not even getting an answer. I'm getting what I would call a bullshit answer. But that could just right. be me expecting something that they're not that's not what they're feeling or that's not the answer that they're going to give no matter what. And, you know, right. I've I've kind of gotten to the point now where I pick and choose those bottomless arguments, <laughs> but right. know, I, I know I still find myself having them, but I find myself having them a lot less because they're exhausting. and uh, they're, they're unending exhausting. Yeah. And, and I don't know, at one point in my life when I was uh, a little bit younger... I almost enjoyed it, but I, I realized that you really don't get anywhere, and it, it almost uh, it almost uh, separates you from that person. It it, it can really affect a relationship uh, in a bad way, and uh, right. So I don't know. I've kind of and it leads to frustrating. And I'm pretty type A problem solver personality. I mean, I can't go to bed if things are undone around the house. So I'd like to get stuff on the table, work through it, be done, 
So yeah. when you find somebody who's hemming and hawing or using tactics of like denying or they're not getting it, whatever the case may be, I will my, that will work my frustration up until I'm wet. Right. I'm the same way. I have a hard time and then going it's a to decision. bed. Like, I, I, I can't do it. I can't go to bed if there's something unresolved. I have a hard time letting that go. I have to figure it out before I can close my eyes. You know what I mean? So I'll find myself sitting up till 1, 2 in the morning just stewing or whatever. <laughs> See, and I'm lucky. I'm kind of nar- narcoleptic. I can fall asleep anywhere at any time, so it doesn't matter how pissed off I am. I'll fall asleep. <laughs> I can't, too, if I put a movie. I was so used to trying to make a point that sometimes I would have one of my girlfriends or friends say something to me, and it would maybe be casual something that they spoke was painful for me. Or maybe I took it as insulting, and then after about three or four days, I had maximized it into this monster, and I would send them an essay about how I did how they said it, how it shouldn't have been said. I mean, it was... I guess my writing ability, but I would I did that so many times for years, and then they would be like, "Huh?" <laughs> Half the time, "Huh?" Why are you <laughs> like you're unloading me with? It was insanity, but it was because I was so used to having to fight through a conflict and being having tactics of of denying and invalidating and hiding the truth. I was so used to it. I was so gunning after it, and that's that is not peace. So do you still do that now? Should I be expecting an essay anytime soon? <laughs> no, no, I am, do not write. I'm retired from conflict. I'm hanging up my asking block. You've got to pretty much. It's like you. I'm not going to get into the arena with anybody over anything anymore. You got to be pretty cunning to get me into the ring. Well, I'm not going to try. I think Ryan might might accept that challenge, but I'm not. I'm not down with that. <laughs> no thanks. No, you seem like you're doing really well now. I want to keep you on that good path. You know. <laughs> right. Well, it takes you to a toxic place, even if you're right. I mean, your motives should always be, if, you know, obviously, but it should also be trumped with peace and, and some kindness. And if you think it's just escalating, 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 and not ending, that's not peace anymore. That's just light fighting. Right. Now, here, here's something that I just thought of when you were talking, too. Um, when you were in the height of your issues growing up, or with your son, did you hate cliches? Like, were you, anytime someone would throw a cliche at you, like, it is what it is, or, you know, let bygones be bygones, did you ever, like, just cringe when you heard those? Yeah, funny, I really did, and I hated small talk. And I remember having to, like, manage all of this when I would go to, I just can't deal with, like, mom's groups or women's groups. It's just not my place. And when I would sit with clients and I would think, this is, like, how are you talking about with such interest or even frustration about things like recipes or stuff that doesn't seem to matter to me? Or, like, how do you minimize things to the cliche? I would kind of, I don't know if that was an arrogant thing or a suffering thing, but I just would absolutely cringe and want to run through a wall. So, I've gotten a little better to where I just want to be kind. So whether I'm tolerating or even trying to be interested, I try not to let myself be so turned off by those things. Yeah, that was just, that was my next question. Was how do you feel about them now? Because like, in in all my growing up in times before sobriety, I hated cliches. When people would say shit with me with cliches, I would read them in the right act and how how it's crap and you know whatever. And now I kind of get them and I kind of believe in them a little bit more. <laughs> you know, like for instance, it is what it is. You know that. The biggest thing with me with with that is, yeah, I it is it is what it is. Kind of coincides with the serenity prayer for me. Like 
You know, it is what it is. I can't change it. I got to accept it and move on, you know. And I used to hate when people said that, but now I kind of get it. And I I use it a lot more. Um, And I use it more in a positive way. Like back in the day, you know, people would say something, I'd be pissed off and drunk. "Ah, It is what it is. Fuck it. Let's get drunk. You know, that was kind of how I said it. And now it's more like, well, it is what it is. I can't change it. I can't fix it. Let's figure out how to deal with it and cope with it. And so it's funny because I ask a lot of people that in, in recovery and in people that have dealt with issues, either uh, dysfunctional families or addiction in their family. And I ask them the same question, and it's usually the same thing. They, they hated it, and now they, they either, A, they love it, and they, they live, live by them now, or they're, they're okay with them. They're um, accepting them now. Them, right. You can make peace with it. Right. My, my most dreaded cliche was, you're bad. I would lose my mind over that one. I think, no, everything's a battle. I'm fighting for my kid's life here. I'm fighting for peace in my home. This is life and death. So I go to third battle because some of them don't have anything to do with the truth of the situation. But I've come to say, I've absolutely come to the point where I do say, choose my battles. It's not my battle. It's not for me. But I would get so ticked off when people, because I was always fighting for him or fighting him for him. And I, I could put my feet on the floor. The gloves were on. I'm going to have to be after him and catching him today. You know, especially when he was a minor. Mm-hmm. But that fight will wear you out. I was as bottomless as anyone else. I have a question, and, and maybe Dave already asked this. I can't remember. Um, what does your son think about this? you writing this book about all this, this whole process? Well, he didn't want his name identified on it just because four of want to recover and, and kind of have a different identity. But he thought it was great. He thought it was one for a goal. He thought I was a fighter to come out with turning kind of our tragedy into triumph. And he has sent me some messages about how he read chapter by chapter. He forget he would forget it with his mom writing it. That's cool. I think it's good that I've changed the names as well because, I mean, it's an embarrassing thing. It's a shameful thing. Even though it really wasn't his fault he fell into that, the behavior afterward. I mean, he certainly was a bad kid or, or not cared about or he wasn't just disposable trash so I think he didn't want to be you know there's a stigma out there that I think has decreased the more this problem has arisen but he didn't want that put on him because not a lot of people understand mm-hmm. right. and that's that's exactly where the bottom line is for, for me and I think for you is getting it out there so people do understand like your, your book is right. about the family side of addiction and stuff and mine is the inside look from me and the things that I did and why I did them. So I think that's another good thing with the synchronicity that you talk about, how your your book kind of adds on to mine, and then in the same token, mine kind of adds on to yours. Because if people are reading right. it for... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, And, and I think it's perfect, because I don't have that side. Because I didn't have as much of an issue with my... I mean, I did have issues with my family, but it didn't go to that route with you, with, with my right. family. Like I said, like my mom was very naive to it all. She kind of... She was the, the June Cleaver. She just, my, my family's perfect. My family's happy. Everybody's good. Where, and in fact, we, none of us are the same. I mean, we're, we're all kind of from the same family, but we're all so different, you know? Um, right. So I think it's really cool because I don't, like I said, I don't have that side of it and I didn't understand it. I, I knew the things and, and things that happened with my family that I did and I caused, but they didn't affect my family as much. 
at least as of right, right now that I know of, you know. And my sister and I have had pretty long, lengthy conversations about my usage. My brother and I don't speak, so it is what it is. <laughs> and my my parents and I, my parents and I, so. yeah, exactly. You know, and, and 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 that's a lot of it too. Like talking earlier about the ninety second rule and doing what's what's right. Him and I were in a bottomless argument. He wouldn't drop it, so I had to drop him completely from my life, and that's the only way right. I, I could because I knew if I let it continue, it would affect my life to the fact that I would start using again, and I don't want that. So, in pretty much. Everyone in my life knows if you're going to be that part of my life where it's going to make me use again, you're gone. You know, I'm sorry. It's just how it is. Right. And because bottom line is I don't ever want to be that person that I was before. And the only way I can do that is to protect myself. And in fact, I'm protecting everyone else by staying clean and sober, you know. And I think a lot of people get that. You know, there were some friends at the very beginning that were like, oh, dude, you're like, you ain't got to quit. You can drink every once in a while. Or you can have a beer here and there. No, I can't. Because I'm an addict, and <laughs> I will start with one beer. And as you said in the story earlier, yeah, it starts with a beer here, but the next thing you know, I'm going to start you know, smoking dope again. I'll start dropping acid. Who knows if I'll get some meth or some crack or some heroin or whatever else I find because that high, it intensifies, and I, get, I built up that tolerance, and i got to go that next step higher and, and keep increasing it to get that same high that I did once got. You know what I mean? And it would turn to... Right. And once all that... progressive. Yep. Exactly, you know, and, and and to be honest, I'm very surprised that I hadn't tried killing myself before I did because my cutting got so severe that it was on both sides of both legs. I was cutting my thighs. I was burning my hands, like, with, with lighters and making the smiley faces. Like, I, and I think that's why I have so many tattoos now, to be honest with you, is because that's more socially acceptable. I was still getting the same pain. Because when I turned eighteen, I got, I, I got like five or six, like in a, within a week of each other, and and I think it was more sociable. And I, and I covered up some of the scarring from the cutting with some of the tattoos, but I don't get that same effect now. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't do the Let's same thing. I love that because that's putting something colorful and artistic over a scar. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm actually love that. working I love that out. You did something with that. Oh yeah, you know, and, and and now I'm actually working on covering up. I'm getting sleeves on both arms to cover up all the tattoos that I have. Not that they were bad by any means, but there is a lot of alcohol <laughs> tattooed on my body that I need to cover up because I'm a new person. I I focus on the phoenix a lot, um, like the whole bird rising right. from the ashes. Right. So, yeah, so like I have a beard oil company called Phoenix Beard Oils because it's the Phoenix. My dog is named Phoenix, you know, like a Phoenix. I, I didn't even catch that. I saw yeah. that was the name of it. I didn't even catch that. I couldn't yep. here. Yeah, and then I got a tattoo design of like a Phoenix rising from the ashes and it's got like butterfly. It's really really pretty. I'll have to send a picture to you, but um eventually once I get the money to fade all my other tattoos to make it go over it. Um but it's 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 not about covering up my past and forgetting my past. It's about starting new and rebirthing myself, basically. Once again, Dave's right. not here. I am here now. If this is the right me, it needs to be the right me. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. There's something else I was going to ask you on your on your uh, your notes, and now I can't remember what it was. Hold on one second. Pull the notes up. Yes, advice for families in struggle. We, we've we talked throughout, but there are some certain things that you want to talk about, or at least that you have on your bullet points. So do you want to do that section now on, on what your advice is for families in the struggle? Yeah, I um, I definitely 
leave them with something each week when I talk to them. Or anyone that, I get a lot of phone calls from people who say, I was given your number because I understand. I mean, I'm so many years out of this now. Even, you know, no matter what span he's, time he's had, I've had so many years of practice with this that I tend to know what works and doesn't work, at least for me. But I'll have, I'll have people call me and say, I hear you dealt with a mom or a child or whatever. But I always say the first thing is absolutely get informed. I made it almost like a full-time job, and I have a stack of journals where I took notes. I would go talk to drug addicts that were in recovery. I'd want to call all the time that I was in high school. Or um, drug dealers. I mean, you have to do it safely. I would go to workshops. I would meet with pharmacists and doctors and police officers and just pick their brains and read books and resources and go to meetings. I, you just gorge yourself on getting educated because the more you know, the more you're going to be able to handle it from an educated perspective and not just get caught. It's not always happenstance, circumstances that rise up when you're dealing with it. Sometimes you can predict it, see it coming or know quickly how to unengage or disengage from it. So I always get said that get informed as much as possible. Make that your mission to know everything you can, you know, as much as possible. And build a good support team. You have to keep your world small because you're easily wounded and you're kind of trying to navigate through this crisis. And you don't want to just go spilling life to everybody. It's not safe. It's not wise. Nobody really wants to hear it, to be honest with you, outside your school. So I built a support team that I could call and vent to. And I always compare the two with, um, I would call my best friend and say, so this person came to the door looking for my son. She'd say, well, let's get in the car and go baseball bat him, you know, like a good best friend says. And then with my therapist friend, and she would talk me through the, the steps and the strategies on how to calm down. So, and you definitely need both. You have to have a great support team. Mm-hmm. Join a group, find a meeting with her. They're, they're everywhere. You can Google all of that. And I follow a recovery plan for myself. Mindful. Um, I believe it's But um, whatever works. And I believe in the three C's. And then I, then I always say just to remember, as sisters, breath, your hope. So those are, that's my advice for family. Don't give it, don't give up. You're okay today. Um, I always make the comment, I couldn't prevent myself death or um, jail sentence or anything like that from drug trouble. Just like I can't run beside every car he's in and make sure he's not in an accident. But we're okay today, and I can take care of him today. And then if you're not struggling, if you're a family that's not struggling with this, be kind because you really don't have any idea what people are going through. Mm-hmm. I really like that, the... As long as there's breath, there's hope. And and that's, like, my, the last chapter of my book is all about hope. Um, because it is. I mean, without hope, we have nothing. You know what I mean? There's nothing to look forward to. Right. There, there's there's no point of life without hope. You know, there is, regardless if you have faith of, of a, a higher power, a God, a religion, or something of life after beyond, you have to have hope for today, hope for tomorrow. And without hope, you're just spinning your wheels for nothing. And and that's what I I, yeah, I, I right. preach that a lot is hope you know and it's all about and that's what I said life is about you know life love joy peace and hope because you have to spread that and without that the world's going to be a worse place the world's already a shithole as it is because a lot of people <laughs> don't have hope they they've given up hope they've right. given up on their faith they've given up on everything and all they they turn to is violence and drugs and and other things. And it's because they've lost that beacon of hope. And I think people like myself, yourself, others out there that put our, our lives and our, our stories out there, and it, it's not to brag about the things that we've done or, or the shit that we've been through. It's, it's just hope that, look, 
we went through this and we made it. Everyone goes through similar stories. Everyone's story is very similar. And if we've all can overcome them, then why else would we right. not tell? You know what I mean? Why else would we not be the beacon of hope for people? Because I've I've survived a lot of things that I shouldn't have. You've been through things that you shouldn't have. Ryan, yeah, right. some things. I'm sure he was friends of mine, so he <laughs> he was friends of mine and we almost died, so I'm sure he was, you know, he, he could have died with me. So yes, we've all been through struggles. Hey, you haven't survived much yet. Hold on because you never know what's around the corner. Everything, you know, you can benefit from it and learn from it, but life ebbs and flows and there's ups and downs and it's not over yet. Right. If you haven't had suffering, you're, you're probably got some ahead of you. I don't wish that on anybody. <laughs> suffering is some people need a good round of suffering to learn. Yeah. Um, but you can't really get nobody goes with if untouched by heartache. Absolutely, we've we've all experienced heartache. We've all experienced loss, but not right. many of us experience hope. And that's what I'm all about is trying to help people get hope and find hope. And I think right. you're you're the same way. And I think that's really cool. And that's like that's why we connected pretty well when we talked on Sunday, is because we're we have the same goal in mind. We may be completely two different people, but we have the same mission, so same goal, um, and that's just to help right. other people. So get hope, and, and I've heard your story as opposed to emancipate you and empower others. So I mean, I'm pretty shy, and I have a hard. I don't know who's gonna like laugh at things or make fun of things or criticize things and I, I really can't care because that's not the mission is to be liked or make friends the mission is I know what it was like to be have no lamp in the midst of so much darkness and nobody telling me hey it's, it's going to be okay I, I really didn't have anybody until I reached out and found those people so that is the hope that you want to give mm-hmm. now one more thing on your book now are you at all scared of any type of backlash um, from your book are you scared of reviews are you scared of anything for your book? Like, like I said, me, mine was very raw, very real. It was no holds barred. It was me. There's no hiding it. I didn't, I'm not trying to knock you. I'm not knocking you whatsoever using a pen name. I totally understand why. But I didn't use a pen name. Like, it's me. Like, it's, I can't hide from it. And that was very scary for me. Do you kind of feel the same way or do you not be, not at all? Um, well, part of it, well, having four brothers and then having a mom who is pretty adversarial, kind of gives you a thick skin where who could turn on me beyond that you know mm-hmm. i'm having to battle my son discrediting me to hide an addiction you know who can hurt me worse than that so part of that when you recover and heal things like that restored is um a, a gift of a thick skin you don't take things as urgently embarrassing or hurtful anymore um i was pretty careful that i don't name names except for us and i changed their names and i don't name a lot of specific things I, because my goal wasn't to shame anybody i really come from a place of believing shame begets shame you're not going to shame anybody to get even or or make them realize truth and when i'm in that kind of place where i'm trying to shame somebody for revenge or to be understood i'm not in a good place i'm kind of stuck with that so i I really didn't take that um angle of putting the information out there so i was careful that nobody would be offended or embarrassed or not be able to come back from it so I'm not really as much worried about backlash as everybody gets criticized, and if it happens, there's nothing I can do but deal with it. At least I know, bottom line, no matter how people misjudge my motive, my motive is to give hope that I didn't feel like I have. So if the backlash comes, that's their problem. Right. No, you've got a really good positive attitude towards it, so that's really cool. Um, so where can... Where- I mean, I've been through a lot of criticism, and you, you tend to stop caring when you get to a certain level of it right you hit a threshold yeah and that's and that's one thing like 
eventually there's going to be someone that hates the book and, and I'm fine with that. You know, it's going to come out. I, I actually did have one lady try to email me on Facebook that said, supposedly said she knew me and knew all my stories were false and lies and, and it was all made up. And I'm like, all right, well, let's talk about this. What, what, what stories am I supposedly faking? <laughs> you know, like, what are you talking about? And I'd never even met the lady, but she worked at the same employer that I used to work at. And she basically said everything that I said was a lie. I don't quite get it, but it is what it is. Are you still there? We lost her. Interesting. We lost her. Well, hold on. We're having technical difficulties. Hmm. Looks like the uh, the whole network just shut down on us. All right. Here we go. You want me to call on my phone? No. It's back now. For some reason, the network just, like, the mobile network just... Hello. Hello again. Yeah, I was I like... One of us got the call. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's quite all right. message you say was you got message from someone that discounted the truth. Oh, okay, yeah. She basically um, said that she worked with me at my employer, and I never met the lady, but she was like, everything that I said about my life and the stories were all total bullshit. I lied about everything, and she was going to expose me for the truth. And so I did some digging and asked a few people that still work there, and, like, that lady's completely crazy. Like, she's, like, way over tinfoil hat crazy. Like, she will sit in her car for a break, but will not turn the radio on because she says that the managers in the store can hear her talking on her cell phone through her radio. Like, she was completely not. So I kind of dis- discounted her, her effect of everything. Not only that, but I know everything that I said was right, right and true. Like I said, I changed a few things as far as people, so it didn't minimize or point, single anyone out. But um, now I completely forgot where I was going with that because we lost the call. That's all right. Well, if you're not the type of person that's super sensitive, then like there are certainly people that you can't speak a word to them without them hitting the ceiling. Right. Um, you can hear criticism, even if it's vitriol, you have to just be careful how you take it. And... Make some good of it. Mm-hmm. You know, when my son would say, my mom's going to come across plastic, she's... We lose you again? Yeah, it's your. it's got to be your phone, bro. Here. It's got to be the storm. Could be. Yeah. Here. Well, let's wrap it up then. Yeah. It's not, uh... Saying mobile network not available. I don't understand. I'm texting her now, telling her I'm calling her back. Let me see that bad boy. I'm going to try and hold it up. Maybe it will. Hello. Alright, so apparently we're having a storm in our neighborhood, which is killing our network. (laughs) So we're gonna we're gonna kind of wrap it up with your plugging and whatnot. Sure. We're at a we're at a minute or an hour and forty six. So I, I was hoping for the two hour mark. Okay. We're pretty close. So if they want to find you, how do they find you? Oh, okay. Well, there's a Facebook page and it started out kind of slow and shy, but it's unhooked, and you can see the picture of the book cover. It's red with a pair of box, pink boxing gloves. Um, and then we'll launch the site once we have the exact date for the pre-order, but we'll put all of that on the Facebook page. And so far, other than my 
Twitter, but I don't use that as much as the Facebook page for it. That's the best way to um, ask questions. You can email me from there, watch for updates. I put a lot of information about opiate problems and family and, you know, strength-building comments, and my pinned announcement on there is about how an enabling stops recovery can start. And it's a really small page, but it has, like, almost 9,000 views in one weekend. So I know people are ready for the information, so you can catch it all on there. All right, Facebook. You know, you're gonna have a you're gonna have its own website then, eventually. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, we're, we'll launch a website. We're just um, we're kind of taking baby steps towards that because the release date was pushed back a little bit. Now, is that something your publisher is hooking up, or are you doing that? They give us an author page, but we were going to expand that and just have a website page just because I have like the next couple of books I wanted to link to that, and I had articles published out in LA, and I wanted to get all of it on there. Yeah, that's what I was going to recommend. Is I. Uh, I put a uh, website together a long time ago for my movies, and it's like my movie title, and I can't like I can still re- relate to that and push people to that, but definitely do something that you're going to be okay with going forward. Like if you start making movies or you have a, a mo- like a, a clothing line later or something, make sure it's like any whatever instead of just unhooked. Right, so, like long term. Yeah, right? yeah, so yeah I think long term. Also put resources of of not just treatment centers, but discussions and family groups because it's not just a, it's not just addiction based it's coming out of madness right. I definitely want to launch that on into the future that's cool cool as long as you're looking forward to it, I just want to throw that in there so they can find you on Facebook it's facebook.com backslash any unhooked and yep, uh, that's right. li- like you on that page you know follow that page yeah, like the page or, and you can email if you have any questions or anything like that even criticisms I'll try to handle it well <laughs> I will not engaged. If, if <laughs> any of them, if any criticism comes to our fans, you let me know. I'll take care of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, and then, and then, obviously, once the book comes out, we'll have to get you on like shortly thereafter, so we can kind of see the success story. We'll kind of follow you along uh, and, and have you on if you if you're willing to and wanting to come back on. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll definitely have you on to kind of see how the the book signings went and kind of follow along on that process because not only am I like really super supportive about it, I'm kind of jealous and envious about it because you're doing what I want to do, you know what I mean? So I want to learn through you so I can know what to expect when I get to that level. Oh my goodness, thank you. I'm sure we're going to be in touch because I'm getting ready to start your book, so. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. Um, anything else you want to yeah, we'll- add before we uh, um- get going here? No, I just I want to thank you for this opportunity and putting it all out there. Thank you for the work you do. Um, keep the fight in the recovery process and keep spreading hope. Well, thank you. You as well. Ryan, you got anything you, well, you, you want to add to her? No, it was great. It's fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. We'll have to um, bar here eventually. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So, well, you have a good day. Right, Thanks well, again, Annie. You guys too. As soon as this Thank comes out, so when this comes out, I'll uh, I'll tag the page or I'll I'll put it on the page for you as well. Okay, perfect. Thank you, and I will be in touch back and forth. All right, you have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, Annie. Well, there you have it. Are you tired of talking, Dave? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, You're still listening? Yeah, I was still listening. 
Oh, well, it's, it was kind of quiet there for... Yeah, I couldn't remember if we called her again or not, because we dropped her so many times at the end. Yeah. So I, I wanted um, to make sure it was actually done done. Yeah, so, it's officially right. done. Yeah. Um, like, like we said at the beginning, because we record the intro after the fact, good interview. She's super nice. Super awesome um, chick, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. Uh, go get the book. To, to um, quote my good friend Nick Cannon, go cop that. Go cop that book. Yeah, go cop that book. Yeah. Um, did we clarify? Is, is it available on Amazon? Uh, it will be, yes, because she said it will be also on Kindle. So Okay. And so, it will have its own website where you can purchase it from there as well. And then in the select locations, uh, California and or, uh, Oregon, I think she said. Um, so there will be book signings to go. If you live in that area, yeah, those will be on the Facebook page. So... If you listen, if you listen to the episode and you live in Oregon or California and you're interested in meeting her in person, probably before Ryan and I do, um, go go get one of those book signings. Go hear what she has to say at the book signing. Meet her. She's like I said, a super great lady. Very excited. Very passionate. Very energetic man. She talks really fast, like I do. So that's really cool. But yeah. Um, so yeah, well, like I was, uh, like I was headed that way. If you buy, you can get the book on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Do you know how you can do that, Dave? I sure do. You can go to. Uh, well, maybe I should have you say it then. Thearyman.com. Click on sponsors. Click on the Amazon banner or a link that'll bring you to Amazon. Doesn't cost you anything extra to buy anything off of Amazon from our banner. You're basically helping out and supporting our cause. We get a small portion of the sale to our website, uh, which then goes towards upgrading our microphones. Um, our soundboard, um, everything, everything. The network. The, the more money we make, the more we can do. You 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 buy a lot of shit on Amazon, we get a shit ton of money. We can tour. We can get a tour bus, and we can come do this live at your town. Yeah. How cool would that be, dude? It, that would be badass. And That'd I, be cool. I, that's, I mean, that's probably the ultimate goal. You know? That would be. You know, I want to do that. I think that would be cool because I've actually seen Jay and Silent Bob do theirs. And it was actually more interesting than I thought. Instead of just, just sitting there, they did some games and shit, and uh, they took some answers and questions from the, the group. So I think that would be cool for us to do. We would do the same thing. We'd do a think tank, and then we'd ask the you know audience, and then we would do some Rock Vegas's where we'd do live skits in front of them. I think that would be great. It would, and it's interactive. You, you actually mm-hmm. so it's it's be it, then it would be beyond just us sitting here right. talking you'd actually get to see the the anima- animation or us being animated yeah. in person you get to see uh you know the, all the stupid yeah. skits that we do on rock Vegas. you get to see me get really uh pissed off talking about conspiracies yeah. on the tank and you can see me rolling my eyes and, and falling asleep when you talk to someone <laughs> and all that good stuff and you can see when we do and this is a spoiler and surprise and an easter egg for people when we do some skits if I know I know it's going to be very funny I close my eyes yeah. you'll see me do, do an improv with my eyes closed and my hands behind my back so he doesn't who else can say that yeah so I don't lose my shit yeah. um, and you get to see me uh, in every skit be the exact same person yeah. Just with a different name. Yeah. It's, but it's the same it's name. It's the same name. It's, it's just, just not my name. Yeah. Um, so so it, it's it's good fun. And uh, yeah. uh, if, if you haven't checked everything else out on the network, go do that because, you know. Yeah. It's it's there. It's free entertainment. The yeah. other thing, the other sponsor, uh, this guy I know, he's got a beard oil company called Phoenix Beard Oil. What? Oils. Yeah. For um, real? Yeah. You go to phoenixbeardoils.com and then... Uh, 
What do you do there, Dave? Uh, I believe... Since that's your company, why don't you... Uh... <laughs> yeah, so Phoenix Beard Oils, obviously, I talked a little bit of it in the interview, and you guys have heard about it enough. We cram it down your throats because it's a good product. Basically, I make and design all the beard oil scents. The beard oil itself is good for your beard, your mustache, your goatee, whatever you have facial hair-wise, to promote healthier growth. It makes it nice and silky smooth, gives it a nice scent. Um... And it just promotes healthier growth. It gets rid of beard dandruff, itching, dryness. It just, it's healthy. Get it. And I don't charge an arm and a leg. I only charge two fingers. So you get to keep your arms and your legs. That's what's up. It's awfully generous of you. I'm a nice guy. But on top of that, Dave. Yeah. When when people buy some of your oils, mm-hmm. they can enter the promo code D2R. That they can. I was waiting for you to throw that out there. And, and what do they get by entering that promo code? They get... They get a discount. They do. 10% off their entire order. Yes, sir. And you're even going to throw in a free sample. Yes, I am. So, I mean, you can't beat it. You can't. And, and I'll even be nice. If you put in the D2R, sample, or D2R code, you get your sample. In your order, there's a little comment section or special request. Put in the scent you want. If you don't put in a scent, I'll throw in my most recent or... Uh, one that I might be just toying around with. It might not even be out for sale, but I might throw that your way. That's pretty cool. So I do that a lot. Yeah. You know, if I'm working on different designs and if I'm not sure if I like it or not, I'll send it out there. Right. You know, here, you check it out. You ship all across the country, right? I, I do. I ship all over the country. Um, I've si- shipped everywhere. Uh, I think right now, as of real time, I think I've shipped to 25 different states. Nice. So not all 50 yet. We're working on it. Maybe by the time people hear this, we'll have been heard in all 50 states. The only we're, one we're lacking is Alaska. Alaska. And I, I understand why. <laughs> I don't know if they have internet up there. Well, let's get that Sarah Palin bitch out there, and uh, let's let's talk to her, get her people in here, and then we'll we'll interview her. Don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so, anyways, thanks again for having me, Ryan. Thanks any, for uh, any thanks for uh, suggesting the topic. Thanks for uh, being a guest on the show today. Yeah. I wish you much luck. I'm sure we'll be in contact very soon. Once again. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. Go get that book. Unhooked. Unhooked by Annie Highwater. Yes, we'll see you next week. I'll smile if I want to. I'm not afraid, gonna flaunt it too. Wanna glow when you're living true. Yeah. I'm living for the right now. I had a few friends show me how. Yeah. I take a deep breath and blow it out. Let it go. But listen, I, I can't wait to see what's around the corner. I can't wait to soar. Baby, I lie awake and I watch you sleeping, thinking it's the little things that make a home. Dancing in the kitchen in the pale moonlight Only care in the world is that our kids are alright Daddy loves mama and mama loves him Tomorrow we get to do it over again So smile at me baby, take my breath away With the good Lord willing, I'll be happy to say That daddy loves mama and mama loves him Tomorrow we get to do it over again
If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Detour Podcast Network on iTunes. Give us a rating and leave us a comment. We'd really appreciate it. Your word of mouth is our only advertising, so please do us a solid. Share us with everyone you know. Thanks for listening.